She's a good girl, loves her mama, loves Jesus in America too. She's a good girl, she's crazy about Elvis, loves horses, and her boyfriend too. And it's a long day, living in Reseda. There's a freeway running through the yard And I'm a bad boy Cause I don't even miss her I'm a bad boy For breaking her heart And I'm free Do, do, do Free falling yeah, I'm free. Do, do, do. Free falling. We're back. Back in town. Stars Born. Episode 25. I am your host yet again, Chris Arneson. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me for yet another episode. Uh, before we start talking about scar joe before we get into her credits and all that good stuff uh i'll introduce myself if this is the first time you're listening um go ahead and listen to the first 24 episodes uh start with episode one will ferrell work your way up the ladder from there and meet me back here but um if you have listened to the first 24 um well you know that i'm an author from pullman washington i'm holding it down as stars born headquarters right now and my apartment, second floor of Coffee House Apartments across the street from Washington State University. Go Kooks. Um Throw that out there. Yeah, it's a beautiful day out today in Pullman. Uh, dare I say, an icy blue sky. Absolutely gorgeous. Only a couple clouds out there. And it's beautiful. Uh, I mean, it's even not even that cold. There's still a ton of snow on the ground. But it's like 40 degrees, so that's nice. Let's see. Find my books on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Kindle. Sponge Cake, a mostly made-up story about a completely insane town and what's in the fridge. Uh, Check out my blog, thegoat1.blogspot.com. Check out my website, chrisstheauthor.com. Follow me on Twitter at chrisstheauthor8 and Instagram, chrisarneson8. Thank you so much for share, share, sharing the podcast. With a friend, family member, coworker, anyone and everyone. We're doing it big, doing it live, uh, doing it real over here. Over here in Pullman on the eastern side of Washington State. Um, in the northwest. In the Pacific Northwest. Um, beautiful. I love it. Thank you so much. Uh, and also thank you for rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. Um, awesome. And today happens to be Pi Day. So... It's March 14th, 2019. Another early recording today. Uh, Only 11.50 a.m. right now. Um, Yeah, so happy pie day. And speaking of pies, let's just get into it right now. We might as well... Oh, yeah, I'd also like to mention that it's the main episode. Um, And if you're wondering what the connection might be there, uh, no real connection to Scar Joe. I think she's from New York City, so we've already done New York in the Denzel episode. Couldn't really figure out a good connection there, so just decided to do Maine. Um, 
Yeah, but speaking of Pi Day, let's talk about a couple pie graphs I made. It's a new regular segment in the show. I make uh, pie graphs, and I've done a few Venn diagrams as well, but I did not do a Venn diagram today. Just did a couple pie graphs in honor of Pie Day. And the first one happens to be my favorite pies in honor of the special holiday. So let's see, start at 3%. Only 3% is a... It's kind of an other category, so raspberry, blueberry, blackberry, etc., cherry, all the other ones. And then 42% is apple, and the winner, 55% favorite pie of of mine, pumpkin. So there you go. And it's not even seasonal. I mean, I know a lot of people, that's like their argument against pumpkin pie is that it's like you can only get it, what, one month out of the year, but stand up for a second. Um, yeah, I, I would eat pumpkin pie right now in March, but I don't know if you could find it, though. That's the problem. Um, that's the problem with this. That's a problem with this country. Can't get pumpkin pie in March. <laughs> what's, what's going on here? Um, seriously, though, you should be able to get. Maybe you can, though. Maybe I just haven't looked close enough. You should definitely be able to get pumpkin pie all year round. That's just my personal opinion. I'm not such a big Starbucks fan that I say you should be able to get the uh, pumpkin spice latte all year round, though. I'm not that crazy. Um, But my other pie graph here is the best, or my favorite, I should say, in my opinion, original Yoplate uh, yogurt flavors. Here we go. 4% 4% mixed berry, uh, 17% key lime pie, 21% Boston cream pie, and the winner, 58% cherry. Love cherry. I like, uh, I prefer the yogurts to have some, some sort of like chunk. I mean, although I do like the key lime pie, which is one that doesn't have any, any substance in it. It's just... It, it doesn't have any, uh, what do you, what do you call them? You know, little chunks of cherries or anything. Um, yogurt. One of my favorite snacks of all time growing up, for sure. Let's see. What else? Let's, before we get into ScarJo, let's talk, um, Mariners. We do it every show. So, Mariners update for the day. They played yesterday and beat the Giants, the San Francisco Giants. Yeah, there we go. Eight to four. It's just spring training, but still, it's a good moral victory. And for some reason, we do not play again till Tuesday, um, the 19th. So it's got a few days off here, so we're going to have to come up with some stuff for the Mariners update for the uh, next few days. We'll see. We'll see what we do here. It's up in the air right now. Um, as for the NBA update, let's see. Let's see if there's anything going on in... On uh, ESPN's NBA, load ESPN. While that's loading, oh, here we go. Harden shrugs off a loss. Cousins steps up for the Warriors in the win over the Rockets. Okay, so that sounds like a big game. That could be a Western Conference Finals preview right there, Warriors-Rockets. Uh, oh, Thompson tweets apology to Warriors fans. Let's see what this is about. Clay Thompson, uh... WSU, Washington State University alum, 
Let's see what his tweet says. I love Dub Nation. We have the greatest fan base in sports. We feed greatly off their energy in Oracle. And I mean, meant no disrespect. Hashtag time to go to work. Hashtag road warriors. What happened? Oh, after Sunday's loss to the Phoenix Suns in which Thompson said there was a lack of energy in Oracle Arena. Okay. That's not too harsh. Um, sounds like there's not much NBA news going on right now. Check the standings. See how many games the Lakers. See if they have any shot at all to make playoffs. LeBron. Um, oh, no. They're seven games back. Nope. Lakers are out. Wow. Five games under 500. All right. There's your NBA update. Looks like, um, wow. I can't believe the Nuggets are in the second seed, though. The Denver Nuggets. All right, enough NBA talk. Uh, I I don't I, I just keep coming back to it. I keep circling around to the NBA. Um, I don't think the Nuggets are going to do well in the playoffs. My prediction. Maybe second round. Go out losing the second round. Uh, here we go. Springfield Files. So this is the Springfield. Uh, the Simpsons episode of the day. Each episode we do a Simpsons. Because it's my favorite show of all time growing up. So this one's called The Springfield Files. It was the 10th episode of season 8, January 12th, 1997. Homer believes he has discovered an alien in Springfield. I chose this one because, as we'll see when we're talking about Scarlett Johansson's uh, filmography on her IMDb page, a lot of her movies are kind of alien and futuristic and... Ghosts and spirits and all that crazy stuff. So, we'll see. Speaking of Scarlett Johansson's IMDb page. Let's not start yet. <laughs> let's hold it off for a second. Let's do the uh, pin of the episode. Each episode, we've been doing a different t-shirt pin. I collected mostly from my uh, baseball playing career. Uh, this one is from Richmond Low League. District 8, All-Stars, 2004. 15-year-old pin here. And it's a state. It's a, the shape of the state of Washington. And it's colored blue. And then there's a baseball that says All-Stars, 2004. And uh, kind of like a red flame streak behind the baseball. Kind of like a, the Arizona Blaze Baseball Club pin that we talked about a few episodes ago. But there you go. This one's pretty cool. It's a nice one. It's definitely nicer than like my home my home little league pin, which was the North Shore Little League one. Super basic. It was just a baseball. <laughs> it's very simple. Or the um what was another simple one? The Oh yeah, the North Bothell one was just a big white circle. But there's been some good ones. I like the the one with the ducks as well. I told you guys my favorite pins yesterday in last uh, last episode. But I left out the the USA flag with the ducks playing on it. I remember we talked about this in the Sandra Bullock episode. That's a pretty cool one though. Um, so there's your pin talk. That's your pin chat for the episode. Let's do some recipe talk. This is from Cooking the Fast Way from... Uh, Maywood Hills from my elementary school. Here we go. This one is from Lisa Fortney. 
and it's marshmallow fudge squares. Your ingredients. One cup of sugar, one cube of butter melted, half cup of cocoa, three eggs, two-thirds cup of flour, one-eighth teaspoon of baking soda, one cup of chopped nuts, one teaspoon of vanilla, half bag of mini marshmallows, six tablespoons of butter, three and a half cups of powdered sugar, cream or milk. And your directions. Preheat oven to 350 degrees. Combine sugar, butter, four tablespoons of cocoa, eggs, flour, baking soda, nuts, and vanilla. Spread in a greased 9 by 9 inch pan. Bake at 350 degrees for 15 to 20 minutes or until toothpick comes out clean. Remove pan from oven. Cover brownies with marshmallows and return pan to oven for 3 to 5 minutes. Flatten softened marshmallows with a spoon. And for the frosting, melt butter. Blend in remaining cocoa and powdered sugar. Add cream or milk until spreading uh, until of spreading consist consistency. Spread frosting while hot. Cool and cut into squares. Boom, boom. There you go. Those sound real good. Um, let's do one more. One more short one here. From Sarah Bush. Uh, peanut butter and raisin rice crispy treats. Uh, eight cups of rice crispy cereal. Two cups of peanut butter. Three quarters stick of margarine, ten and a half ounces package of marshmallows, one cup of raisins. Melt marshmallows and margarine for three minutes and thirty seconds in the microwave. Mix together peanut butter and marshmallows and margarine. Mix in Rice Krispie cereal, add raisins, put in a nine by thirteen inch pan. Let set and eat. <clears throat> Let it set it and ate it. Um, wow, that's a weird combination. I've never heard of peanut butter going with raisins and Rice Krispie. What? From Sarah Bush. From the uh, Bush family. Um, let's just do one more short one here. Oh, wow. This is a fun name. It's in honor of a... Is this a real name? In honor of the holiday coming up uh, next month, this person's name is Easter Gifford. Easter is their first name. I wonder if that's on their birth certificate. Is that a name? Is that a name? <laughs> is their middle name Island? Easter Island Gifford? <laughs> Easter Bunny? Their middle name is Bunny? Easter Bunny Gifford. Um. Wow, that's crazy. All right. Pumpkin Spice Cookies. Your ingredients, one bag of Betty Crocker sugar cookie mix, three-fourths cup of pumpkin, one teaspoon of cinnamon, one quarter teaspoon of nutmeg, one quarter teaspoon of cloves, sprinkle of ginger, one can cream cheese frosting, and optional walnuts, raisins, chocolate chips. Directions, follow directions on package for sugar cookies. Add pumpkin, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and ginger. Bake as directed on package and frost with cream cheese frosting when cooled. Ooh, let's just do one more short one here. I <clears throat> keep saying that. <clears throat> Actually, there's a couple more short ones here. Real short ones. Uh, this one does not have a name next to it. 
I love reading the recipes. I should host a, I could host a cooking show where there's no cooking, but I just sit and read recipes. And it could be on uh, the Food Network. That'd be pretty fun, right? I could do some sort of recipe-based show, or just like, I maybe I read the recipe and then someone brings me out a sample of it that someone else made, <laughs> like a professional cook. That's a good show. And we could call it Recipe for Disaster. <laughs> or Recipe for Success. Yeah, let's, why not aim for, aim higher? Let's aim for success. Recipe for success. Um, oh, I'm going to stand up right now and write that down. Grab my uh, flamingo, my trusty flamingo notepad here. Uh, recipe for success TV show. Food Network. I could be the host. I like it. Uh, let's do one more. And just sit. This is kind of... This is my pitch to the uh, Hollywood executives for Recipe for Success. Just this segment of the uh, Star is Born podcast. Someone uh, will have to cut a clip of it and uh, send it to them. FedEx it to them. Here we go. Let's do one more. Uh, there's no name next to it. Seven layer bars. A half cup butter or margarine. One and a half cups finely crushed graham crackers. One cup, six ounces of semi-sweet chocolate chips. One cup, six ounces of butterscotch chips. One and a third flaked uh, cups of flaked coconut. One half cup of chopped walnuts. One 14-ounce can of sweetened condensed milk. And your directions? Melt butter. Stir in crushed graham crackers. Pat evenly in bottom of ungreased 13 by 9 by 2 inch pan. Layer in order. Uh, chocolate chips, butterscotch chips, coconut, and walnuts. Pour sweetened condensed milk evenly over all. Bake at 350 degrees for 30 minutes. Cool and cut into bars. Boom. Seven layer bars. Now I've heard of seven layer dip. But I never... I never, not in all my years, have I heard of something as crazy as seven layer bars. And I'm digging it. Um, I don't want this to turn into a cooking show because it's not. But let's just do one more. I promise this is a real tiny one. Real quick one. Uh, Denise Klein, who's a FAST member. Um, Here we go. I like the name already. Wacky Cake. One and a half cups of flour, one cup of sugar, one teaspoon of baking soda, three tablespoons of oil, three tablespoons of cocoa, one tablespoon of vinegar, one teaspoon of vanilla, one cup of water. Mix ingredients together and bake at 350 degrees for 30 to 40 minutes in an ungreased pan. There you are. I told you it was a short one. There's your wacky cake. Sounds super wacky. Um, there we go. That's a bunch of recipes for y'all. Let's um, let's see what else we got. What's on the what else is on the docket for the old podcast today? Clip. Let's do the clips update. We do it every episode. Um, I have not read any more of David Sedaris's uh, latest book, Calypso. I'm still on page two fifty. Only uh, eight pages left, though. 
It's a 258 page book, so we're almost there. Um, Lorraine Neeson. Lorraine Neeson in the Macy's. Uh, let's see. Let's do Maine. Right now, we're peeking at the Road Trip America, a state-by-state tour guide to offbeat destinations by Andrew F. Wood. This is Maine. Because today, we're talking about Maine. Here's a sign. It's one of those signs that has a bunch of uh, different random places. It says Norway, Paris, Denmark, Naples, Sweden, Poland, Mexico, Peru, and China. Then it has like a distance, miles for each one. But the miles don't seem accurate though. That's for sure. It's like 14, 15 miles, 23. How could that be? Uh, Anyway. And then there's a picture of Maine Vacation Land, Sunset at Camp, Androscoggin County. And then um, a girl playing the trumpet on the beach. And and the sunset is behind her. Um, and then here's one of Bay and Camping Field, Underwood Motor Camp in Portland, Maine. And it's just like a motor. It's a cool motor camp it's right on the beach. Beautiful view of the beach. Uh, here we go. The state of Maine. Did you know? Your fun fact. Heading east? Why not stop at the town of Eastport, the easternmost point of the United States? A small town of about 2,000 folks live on Moose Island. Hey, Lorraine needs them in the Mooses. Next episode, we're going to be traveling on over to Maine. We're going to go to Eastport, Maine and Moose Island. Let's let's take our take our travels. Let's take the RV right on over to Moose Island and go wild. Um, Eastport boasts unspoiled beaches, tidal covers, and inland lakes, but the most memorable part of your visit comes in the morning. Eastport claims to get the first rays of sun in the country. Ooh, so set that alarm. Set a couple alarms when you're in Eastport. Wake up early for that sunrise. Uh, here we go. Let's read a little bit about Maine. Perhaps the second most basic theme of road travel postcards, besides wish you were here, was thank goodness you're home. Highway travel was not nearly as glamorous as the travel books said. Moreover, most tourist lodgings were little more than shacks thrown up next to a gasoline pump. Maybe you could buy some homemade sandwiches from the owner or go into town for fried chicken or and an orange soda, but you all, almost always provided your own linens and were lucky if your cabin wasn't a glorified outhouse. Consider the Underwood Motor Camp, once located in Portland, Maine. Haphazard cabins and dirt roads attracted early motorists seeking to get away from it all. Today, lodgings in the Pine Tree State, uh, the Pine Tree State, Offer more comfort while the roadside attractions offer more global appeal. Tiny world. For example, instead of journeying out of state in search of one of the nation's tiny towns, you can enjoy the grand spectacle of a tiny world. Drive to Yarmouth and look through the three-story atrium of the Delorme Mapmakers. There you can gaze upon the 41-foot diameter, 6,000-pound Eartha globe spinning on a realistic axis. Take the tour and discover the detail to be found on the world's largest globe. Eartha is covered with a miniature scale. One inch equals 16 miles. 
of oceans, highways, and other forms of natural and human development. The computer-generated image represents enough information to fill about 214 CD-ROMs. Oh, I remember CD-ROMs. Uh, making mixtapes on CD-ROMs. Um, another way to experience the smallness of our blue planet is to journey to Lynchville, Maine, in search of their famous road sign. Suddenly, you're 14 miles from Norway, 15 miles from Paris, 37 miles from Mexico, and merely 94 miles from China. Yes, these bergs all lie in the vicinity of Lynchville, of Lynchville, Maine. If your journey takes you to Lisbon Falls and you find yourself a bit thirsty, goodness help you if you ask for a typical soda at a fast food restaurant. This is Moxie Country. While initially sold as a patent medicine for various nervous disorders, including softening of the brain, the New England-based beverage quickly adapted itself as a soft drink. Moxie burrowed itself into the public consciousness with the aid of a seemingly ubiquitous Moxie man, whose vigorous appearance, piercing stare, and outstretched index finger practically dared a passerby to drink or, to drink or fight. Uh, made from gentian root extract, Moxtrack, oh, excuse me, Moxie, offers a taste closer to cough syrup than cream soda and was largely abandoned upon the arrival of sweeter soft drinks. But true Moxie lovers never gave up. They formed a Moxie militia, a New England Moxie Congress, and they even celebrate an annual Moxie Days Festival in Lisbon Falls, in which 15,000 spunky Moxie lovers uh, gather each July to tell stories, trade memorabilia, and remind the unbelievers to make mine moxie. Properly fortified, head north to Bangor in search of the real home of the myth mythical outdoorsman Paul Bunyan. Sure, some folks say the lumberman who carved the Grand Canyon and formed lakes with his footsteps was born in Minnesota, but Bangor, historians proudly trace the lineage of Paul and his companion, Babe the Blue Ox, to Maine backwoods uh, lumberjacks. To strengthen their claim, Banger is home to a 31-foot-high bearded statue whose very presence proclaims to all, all the world that Maine is home to Paul Bunyan. And that is just a little bit about Maine. There you go. Very good. Um, let's see. Here's something I want to tell y'all. A little anecdote. Um, oh, yes. When we were reading the pie graph for my uh, favorite pies, I also want to mention that I do not consider strawberry shortcake to be a pie because it would have snuck in there for sure. But um, I think strawberry shortcake, that's like a different thing. Like angel cake is different than pie. Um, let's see. I want to tell you all a little anecdote. I've talked a lot about being an intern at Covington Parks and Recreation. Um, so this is like some of the stuff I learned. This is a... A little learning discussion here. Let's see. So I learned how to put the basketball, um, the basketball hoop up. <clears throat> Basically, you have to, it's usually a two-person job. You climb a ladder, and then someone will hand you this giant hoop, and you have to, like, attach it and screw it in. And it was really hard at first because um, it's still, like, unwieldy. And, I mean, it may only be, like, 60 pounds or something, but it's shaped so weirdly that it's kind of hard to to wrangle, you know, but um 
you get used to it. But the first time when I was learning how to do it, it was a it was like a soggy afternoon and we went to the local park to do it. So it was outdoors. So I think that made it a little tougher. But um I just remember having kind of a poor attitude, <laughs> kind of being, because I think I was thinking that I might, I might like bolt on the internship for some reason. I don't know why, but I, w- I guess I just wasn't enjoying it that much at that time because I was still only a couple weeks in and I was just kind of iffy on it. So I kind of, I just remember having a negative attitude that afternoon and I think it made it like a little tougher for me to learn how to do it because it takes so much neg- it takes so much energy to be negative i think you actually like i don't know i think it just actually takes less energy just to allow ourselves to be positive maybe that's just my inner uh dr phil and oprah talking right there but um anyway i just remember like learning how to really master how to do it um the first saturday um of scorekeeping each Saturday, I would work at the basketball games, like 12 hours, just scorekeeping and being the referee lead. And I would have to put up the basketball hoops, like four of them, each morning, uh, each Saturday morning. So that really, um, yeah, and with the help of, like, people teaching me how and showing me tricks how to do it, that's how you, uh, that's how you learn how to do stuff. You ask questions, get help from people, practice, um, have a good attitude. But yeah, I just wanted to share that. Um, I thought that was a good learning moment. Because when I first was like introduced to how to do it, I was like, this is tough. This thing's huge. Like I have no idea how to do it. But then like after a few times, I was like, this is pretty easy. <clears throat> and that's just what repetition and muscle memory and practice and confidence and getting used to stuff, you know? Um, something else that I did for Covington Parks and Rec was... I helped teach an after-school art program with um, Maya, who was uh, my co-worker there, who I, I worked with the most. Um, yeah, and that was really fun. That was a great leadership experience. Uh, I remember one of my most favorite memories from that was uh, reading a picture book out loud to the class. Um, I don't know. That was just fun. Just to goof around and be a goof and use funny voices for characters and stuff and try to get try to get laughs from from the crowd um I thought it was it's always it's always good to have like public speaking experience and leadership uh, experience and leadership position and all that good stuff oh and also something interesting I learned there is um how to draw a perfect circle especially on the whiteboard you just stand at arm's length and then hold your arm out fully extended and then just draw the circle and then um it's much easier um maya taught me how to do that try give it a shot um after you give that that uh the jesus was it the jesus dots the optical illusion i talked about a couple episodes ago if you just search uh if you google 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 uh, Jesus op- optical illusion. I've talked about it. Um, but yeah, just hold your arm full length and draw that circle on that whiteboard. I'm not sure how you would do it. I guess you could just put a piece of paper like on the wall and do it, but it's much easier on a whiteboard, I guess. Um, oh yeah, kind of in the same learning vein, 
kind of similar to learning how to put up that basketball hoop, was figuring out. See, as you guys can tell from this kind of stuff, is I'm I kind of have difficulties with mechanical, the mechanical aspect of stuff, and um, yeah, that kind of like I don't know, it just intimidates me sometimes. Like I'm not the most handy, the most handy person. Like I've never been known to like, like I don't know how like change a tire really or that kind of stuff. I'm sure I could like Google it and follow the steps, watch a YouTube video, kind of try to figure it out. But I don't know. I do know how to check my oil and um, put more oil in my car, my Honda Accord. But uh, I've never changed the oil, but I've only added oil and I know how to check it. So use the dipstick, pull out the dipstick to check it. But um, yeah, so I'm never, I'm not the most handy person is what I'm trying to say. Um, But in the same vein as the basketball hoop, learning how to put that up, I figured out how to put the, uh, how to lock the storage area. It was a very, it was like stuck. It was just one of those locks that you have to like really like shove, shove the storage door down with all your might. And I remember just being by myself and trying it for like what seemed like hours, but I'm sure it was only like 10 minutes tops, but I was so stressed out. I was just like pacing and um, I finally figured out how to do it. And that was super, super gratifying when I did that. I was, I'm sure I did like a Tiger Woods fist bump. And I remember seeing the person drive by in a pickup truck through the storage area. They were watching me try to do it. So they were probably like, "This look at this clown. Doesn't even know how to lock his storage area. <laughs> um, but yeah, I was pretty pumped up when I did a crazy celebration when I figured it out. And then uh, one more thing about the old... Man, that storage area thing is crazy. The storage wars. Never watched storage wars on TV, but... I think it's still on. Like, I think they're still making new episodes. Um, I don't know. Are people living it? Is it? I'm sure it's against the rules for people to live in those storage areas. That's for sure. But is that what Storage Wars is about? I think... I mean, I don't think so. But let, let's see what Storage... I think Storage Wars is they just... Let's see what the plot of Storage Wars is. And then... Um, then I'll tell you that last... The last thing about... About me working at... As an intern, garage sales are an old school waste of time. What? I don't like that. I'm a garage. I'm a garage sale aficionado. Come on, man. Uh, are an old school waste of time. At least in the eyes of the treasure hunters featured in this real life series, each half hour episode follows a group of bidders looking to strike it rich by buying repossessed storage units. Oh, so they buy the whole thing. They're at once detectives and gamblers. As as they get only a quick flash it, flashlight aided peek inside the units before they decide if they want to make a bid and for how much. It's a high stakes game that can pay off big time. One featured collector bought a unit for eight hundred dollars and sold its contents for a forty thousand dollar profit. Or leave one sifting through the equivalent of trash. The trash man. Um Brandy Passante and Dave Hester, Laura Dodson, Daryl Sheets. Daryl Sheets. He's a he's a a Daryl in the streets and a Daryl in the Sheets. Um 
Let's see. <clears throat> so that was Storage Wars. The last thing I want to tell y'all, tell y'all about my time at Covington is about, oh yes, so I told you about working for that soccer camp, coaching, helping to coach the spring soccer camp. That was a lot of fun. And another fun memory was from that was, I think it was the last day of camp. It was super rainy, so we couldn't really, it was like pouring rain. So we had to go inside somewhere, so we walked Walked about half mile maybe up to the pool, and um, we watched the movie Puss in Boots. Was that uh, Antonio Banderas, I believe, in uh, Soma Soma Hayek? Um, it was a pretty funny movie, but that was a lot of fun. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what about it. I just I just had a a good memory of that. I just wanted to give a little shout out. It was that was the last day. That that definitely was. That was a, that was another example of being in a leadership position and getting good learning experience from being a coach. That's fun. It's a good time. Um, let's see. I like scrimmaging, like because I'm not a soccer player at all, so my skills were kind of comparable. I mean, I could just get by and just like kicking the ball way out in front and just running after it. Cause I don't have a lot of like foot skills, dribbling skills. Um, it was fun though. I scored a few goals. I went hard. I was, I was definitely like, I wasn't taking it easy. Like most of the kids were probably around like ten years, maybe ten or something. The oldest ones were probably like thirteen or something. But I was going hard. I was driving the lane, shooting. And just drilling the ball right at the goalie. Um, basically, <laughs> going ham. Um, let's see. I think now's a good time. Let's just get started on Scar ScarJo. Let's hop into ScarJo's IMDb. Here we go. The first movie is 1994 North. I've heard of this one. She plays Lauren Nelson. North is PG, 87 minutes, adventure, comedy, drama. Sick of the neglect he receives from his mom and dad, a young boy leaves home and travels the world in search of new parents. What? Elijah Wood. And, uh, Elaine. What? George and Elaine. Wait. This kid's parents are George and Elaine from Seinfeld. George Casanza and Elaine from Seinfeld. That's weird. That's funny. I feel like that would like definitely take me out of the movie. Be very distracting. Because it came out in 1994. Right right in the peak of Seinfeld. When it was as peak of popularity. So, Wow, that's funny. They, I wonder if the executives... They must have been huge Seinfeld fans. Uh, the producers or something. Uh, let's see. 1995. Just Cause. Just Cause. Uh, or Just Cause. Uh, Katie Armstrong. TV series, 1995, The Client. She plays Jenna Hallowell, one episode. 1996, Manny and Lowe plays Amanda. 1996, If Lucy Fell plays Emily. And then she's in 1997, she's in Fall. Plays little girl. 
So she's in two fall, back-to-back fall-related movies. Um, but I wonder if fall is about the um, season. Maybe it's about autumn. Oh, I didn't know she was in Home Alone. Home Alone 3, 1997. Molly Pruitt. 1998. Grace McLean. Mac In The Horse Whisperer. Uh, let's see what The Horse Whisperer is. It's a long movie. 169 minutes. Drama, romance, western. PG-13. The mother of a severely traumatized daughter enlists the aid of a unique horse trainer to help the girl's equally injured horse. Huh. So it's like... I wonder if this is where um, Caesar Milan got his idea for the dog whisperer. I wonder if he watched this movie and was like... Just watched it with his dog. Just looks at his dog and is like... I can make this a career. We can do this. He just gives like a knowing nod to his dog. <laughs> um, that'd be fun. Uh, that'd be fun. Okay, speaking of fun, let's answer a fun question here. What would my NPR show be? So I've been asking uh, what would my uh, show be for different TV channels. So I decided to do one for a, a radio channel. What would my NPR? I think it would be like wacky landmarks around around um I wanna do international. International wacky landmarks. And I, I would travel. It would be like one of those travel shows. Like each episode I could visit maybe three different obscure like monuments or landmarks. They're like big tourist destinations. They're unique to, to a specific location in the world. I want to make it worldwide. I was going to say just American, but I like to travel the world. So we could call it. Let's see what we call it. Land, mark, <laughs> land or sea, mark. Nah, that's kind of a mouth. That's kind of confusing. I think uh, we'll come up with a good title. We'll we'll uh, brainstorm it. Well, I don't know why I have a landmark in my head. That's not really tourist traps. Maybe that's what I could call it. like tourist tra- trap tourists. There we go. I like that. That's a good title. Trapped tourists. Um, I'm gonna write that one down too. That's a good title. I like that. I like alliteration, of course. Um, NPR. Now I have to, of course, I have to write NPR so I know what I was talking about. Um, I like that title, Trapped Taurus. And it would, yeah, I would just travel the world looking for obscure. Yeah, I already explained it. (laughs) You guys got it. Um, There we go. Cool. I like it. Very fun. Very fun. Very fun. Uh, Speaking of fun, let's read a little bit of Bill Simmons's Now I Can Die in Peace. How ESPN's sports guy found salvation with a little help from Nomar, Pedro, Shawshank, and the 2004 Boston Red Sox. New York Times bestseller. Um, here we go. So I've talked about Bill Simmons like every episode pretty much, but he was pretty much my writer hero growing up. So, like my favorite writer back in the day. I mean, I haven't read him as much lately, but... 
I don't know if he has a new book coming out, but we'll see. This one is called, so this is just a collection of articles and columns uh, leading up to 2004 when the Red Sox won the World Series. This one's called The Other Shoe from July 17th, 2000. There's a scene in Jerry Maguire after Renee Zellweger's character falls for Jerry, the handsome, thoughtful, down-as-luck down sports agent, when she tells her sister, I feel like I'm getting a great break on a used car. Footnote, don't kill me for quoting Jerry Maguire, which remains the most divisive case study in the history of sports movie versus chick flick debate. I actually call these movies spork flicks. They have enough sports stuff that guys can stand them, but enough chick flick stuff that women are happy. With McGuire, since T Rod Tidwell was the most realistic sports movie character of the past 15 years, that fulfilled its sports movie requirements on its own. And yet, this is the kind of movie that will pop up on the Lifetime Network from time to time. Very difficult to pull all of these things off. Some other examples. For Love and Basketball, Bull Durham, Vision Quest, and Rocky. That was a problem with the loathsome fever pitch. Oh my god, I've talked about how much... This is me. I talked about how much I love Fever Pitch. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. And Bill Simmons is a big Red Sox fan, and he does not like Fever Pitch, which is a Red Sox movie. Uh, that was a problem with the Lowsome Fever Pitch, by the way. It marketed itself as a sports flick, but it was really just a straightforward chick flick. <laughs> yeah, it really wasn't much of a sports movie. Even though they did go in the field of the World Series after the Red Sox won. The Farrelly brothers still owe me $10, uh, Bill Simmons said. All right. Hey, we've all, spent some, we've all spent time with someone who seemed great on the surface, only we felt that nagging used car sense about them, even as we were still getting sucked in. Why is this person still single? Why hasn't anyone else snapped them up yet? When will the other shoe finally drop? Usually things remain fine for a few more weeks until our beloved starts Beloved starts showing their true colors, and we discover they're carrying more baggage than a Learjet. Everything finally adds up, and we never feel the same again. This doesn't just happen with relationships. Last Saturday at Fenway, Red Sox fans were collectively clobbered over the head with the other shoe. The new guy flipped out. The new guy bumped an empire and headbutted him. The new guy tossed aside teammates and coaches like blocking dummies. The new guy stormed back to the dugout, broke some things, screamed at some more teammates. And then he stormed into the clubhouse and probably calmed down within 15 minutes. For him, it was over. But not for us. And not for me. There was always something about the Carl Everett era in Boston that didn't add up. Players with MVP potential don't get traded three times in five years. Players with MVP potential don't settle for cheap money. Three years, $21 million. Players with MVP potential don't inexplicably service on the discount trade rack no matter how badly their franchises need to chop payroll. And as we watched him belting homers and pointing to the sky for the first two months, we all felt like Zellweger's character during those first few months with Jerry Maguire. Now we know. It all adds up. There is no such thing as a great break on a used car. Uh, footnote, four years later, Corey Dillon proved me wrong. I guess you never know. Maybe we knew all along. It wasn't any one big thing. Just a number of small things that kept building toward one conclusion, a conclusion nobody wanted to face. The new guy isn't all there. He bashed the Yankees in spring training, bashed Jeter and Paul O'Neill and Joe Torre, 
bashed the Mets, insulted the pitcher who blanked the Red Sox in April for having mediocre stuff, talked about dinosaurs and how he thought they never existed, quoted Psalms about um, from the Bible, uh, despite the fact that we could see him swearing on the field at times, griped about being rested for one measly game, alluded to mysterious forces that were handicapping his manager, laid an expletive-filled tirade on a sports columnist and a Red Sox employee. We looked the other way every time. And why? Because the new guy was exceedingly fun to watch. A riveting mixture of oil can Boyd, Mr. T, and former Sox slugger Reggie Smith. Former Sox star Reggie Smith. Uh, footnote, the vocal similarities between Everett and Mr. T were eerie. You could almost imagine Everett storming into the manager's office and screaming, Don't you give me no jibber-jab, Jimmy Williams. I pity the fool who stands up to me. I pity the fool. That's just Carl, we said to ourselves. The new guy. He's a little loopy. Well, he's a little more than that. And if you think I'm wrong, then you weren't there at Fenway Park on Saturday afternoon. Sitting nine rows behind the Mets on deck circle, I had a bird's eye view as Everett stormed away from the batter's box turned toward the mess dugout, walked a few steps, and dropped an F-bomb loud enough for every child in our section to hear. I watched Everett whip off his helmet, charge forward, bump home plate umpire Ron Culpa with his chest, then ram his head toward the bridge of Culpa's nose. I watched the ensuing fallout, my heart pounding the entire time. This wasn't fun or cute, and it certainly failed to fire anyone up. I read every account of Saturday's game over the past two years, but nothing accurately captured the emotions in Fenway. Remember, this was the final game of a heated Mets-Red Sox series. The stands were filled with fans from both sides, everyone screaming at different times like a European soccer crowd, and it was a gorgeous afternoon to attend a baseball game, on a weekend no less, so everyone's spirits were high. When Everett and Culpa started clashing, it meshed with the atmosphere in the stands, and a jolt of electricity surged through the crowd. We were poised for a classic, old-fashioned baseball argument. Then Everett lost it. It was like someone pulled Warren's ears and there's something about Mary, only with 35,000 people watching. Quick tangent. Baseball crowds produce an eclectic variety of memorable sounds. There's the, we need to strike, we need strike three, and we got it, roar. There's the, that ball looks like it might have a chance, and it's gone, cheer. There's the, wow, what a play, sudden yelp. There's even the disturbing, Fred Lynn just ran into the center field wall at full speed and now he's dead, groan, which you probably remember from game six of the 1975 World Series. Basically, everyone's cheering and screaming and then, boom, things turn silent and horrified, and a horrified hush reverberates around through the park. Through the park. It sounds like this. Hurrah, ooh, ooh, hurrah, ooh. Why is this revel relevant? When Everett and Culpa butted heads, we made the Fred Lynn is dead sound. Hurrah, ooh. Nobody wanted that. Once his teammates pushed Everett toward the clubhouse to cool off, the fans weren't the same for a few innings until the Sox rallied to tie the game. As far as I'm concerned, Everett ruined the afternoon. The other shoe smacked 33,288 people right in the forehead. Everett's anger was justified. Not his actions, his anger. And he deserved the right to make a commotion and plead his case. Culpa had, made, had told him to move off the plate. 
but you could sift through history and find dozens of athletes who showed their true colors once they faced a little adversity, from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar sucker-punching Kent Benson to Clemens flipping out in Game 4 of the 1990 playoffs. Seriously, would Nomar ever butt heads with an umpire, even semi-accidentally? Good people don't react to situations that way. It's that simple. Uh, footnote, see Ron Artest and Steven Jackson. Throw in Everett's reported struggles to control his temper in the past as Gordon Edis tackled in yesterday's Globe, and the picture becomes a little clearer. Just $21 million and one prospect for the right to play a potential MVP and center for the next three years? Two months ago, it didn't add up. Now it does. Footnote. In this paragraph, I removed two, sentence, two sentences Excuse me. about Robert Ori throwing a towel at Danny Ainge, then coaching Ori for the Suns, which included the phrase, I hated him ever since. The only time in this entire book that I changed an opinion I had at the time. And here's why. I, lo I love Big Shot Rob now. He's the Nate Dog of the NBA. Doesn't get enough attention, always seems to be involved in a winning effort, and it's been going on for like 13 years. In fact, this spring, I received the email, whose career would you have rather had? Carl Malone's, Charles Barkley's, or Robert Ory's? And decided on Ory. Anyway, I wouldn't have lived with myself had that Ory slam remained in the column. The more I'm thinking about it, Ainge probably deserved it. Uh, I keep remembering the way I felt in April. When Everest play inspired me to devote an entire column to him. Now I keep remembering the portly guy in my section who kept blaming the umpire and stealing the she-was-asking-for-it defense from Jody Foster's attackers and the accused. I actually ended up arguing with him. He was such a miserable moron, I couldn't take it. As we debated points until I finally hissed, that's a good lesson for you to teach your son. I was half-joking, but that man should shut him up. After all, his son had been sitting next to him the entire time. The boy looked no older, older than 11. His mouth was covered with metal. He looked awkward as hell, and he wasn't even listening to us, just staring intently on, onto the field, probably wondering when the center fielder was going to run back out to headbutt the umpire again. That was Saturday. Everett, was, Everett returned the following day and slammed a pitch into the center field bleachers against Montreal. The fans stood and cheered as Everett rounded the bases and reached home plate, where he touched his chest, kissed his hand, and pointed up towards the sky. Then he jogged back to his dugout, where his teammates slapped him on the rear and doled out high fives. Life goes on. Two months ago, I would ha have felt giddy. Now, I'm just hoping he makes it through the season. I've rooted for guys I didn't like before, with Antoine Walker being the prime example, and I'll support Everett for as long as he wears a Red Sox uniform. Footnote. That proclamation lasted about 10 more days. Everett's career in Boston ended predictably the following season. Just five days after 9-11, he cursed out manager Joe Kerrigan and was sent home for the season. They traded him to Texas that winter. Here's what I wrote in my end-of-the-year report card. Not since Jim Rice developed rigor mortis between the 1986 and 87 seasons has a Red Sox player declined so quickly and abruptly from one season to the next. Once a 330 home run switch hitter with a decent glove and enough power to carry the team for a few games on end, Everett simply fell apart in 2001. Put on weight, couldn't hit righties, couldn't run, and made Manny look like a young Fred Lynn in the field. Just a shocking collapse. 
It's like he aged in dog years. Uh, to put it coldly, he gives this team a better chance to win, warts and all. With that said, I won't care about him the same way. I care about Nomar and Pedro and Sabes and everyone else. If Everett called Culpa and offered him an apology, everything would have been forgiven. Anyone with a good heart would have done that. Hey, sorry about yesterday. We were both wrong, and I overreacted. My bad. Then served their suspension, upbraided, upbraided and a little mortified, and the whole thing would eventually be forgotten. But Everett didn't apologize, nor did he seem contrite. Actually, he didn't seem to care at all. Not that he certainly jeopardized his team's pennant ch chances with a win, with a, excuse me, jeopardized his team's pennant chances with a long and imminent suspension. Not even that his young son witnessed the sordid episode from the family section. All he cared about yesterday was circling the bases and remembering to point at the sky when he touched home plate. And so nothing changed for him over the past 48 hours, even if everything changed for me. He didn't change. I changed. Maybe you did too. The other shoe strikes again. And then the final footnote. The creator of the other shoe theory, my buddy Joe House. Every time I met someone I liked, House would ask if the other shoe had dropped yet. Invariably, it always did. And then I met my future wife, and he kept asking when the other shoe was dropping, and I kept telling him, I don't know if it's happening with this one. And it didn't, although I guess there's still time. Um, that's funny. Uh, Bill Simmons. That's funny, because Joe House was there when I met Bill Simmons, the only time I ever met him, at his book signing, way back in, well, that must have been November 2009. Almost 10 years ago now. Almost a decade ago. But, um, yeah, Joe House was there. He was eating, as he's known to do. Um, yeah, there's a, he actually has a YouTube show called House Eats. And it's, it's pretty funny. He just does a, it's kind of like um, a short version of Man vs. Food. That uh, Travel Channel show with Adam Richman, I believe is that guy's name. Let's see. We got now. We gotta see now that I brought that up. I want to see some of the craziest. I want to see some of the craziest challenges that Man vs. Food has completed. Um, cause each episode he'll do a different, a different famous food challenge. Let's see. And then it lists all the different winners. Um. I just want. I want to say, like, Man vs. Food, best, best of, best challenges. There we go. Man vs. Food, best challenges. Because uh, he'll, he'll eat, like, a dozen eggs. Let's see if this is a clip show. Oh, here we go. Nice, it's not a clip show. It's not one of those slideshow things. This is a... Um, some website called One Country. Um, and it says, 12 insane man vs. food challenges you can try for yourself. So here's the first one. is the, the Big Texan Steak Ranch 72-ounce steak challenge in Amarillo, Texas. Four and a half pounds of steak in one hour. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's no way. One person. <laughs> no. One person must eat a meal consisting of shrimp cocktail, baked potato, salad, 
I wonder what kind of, if it matters what kind of dressing you go. Or if you just go no dressing. Maybe save some calories. I would go Caesar. Or no dressing. Um, a buttered roll and a, and a four and a half pound steak. In one hour. The meal is free to anyone who can successfully consume every single ounce in the 60 minute time limit. That's like the most brutal part is you can only have an hour to finish all that. Maybe if I had like four hours, I might have a chance. But no way, I couldn't eat that much meat. I couldn't put down four and a half pounds of meat. Oh my god. Uh, The West End Tavern Wing King Challenge in Boulder, Colorado. Oh my goodness. One person. (laughs) I can't believe this guy does. Because if you've seen... Um, Adam Richman, the host of the show, he's not like a, he's not a big guy, just like um, Kobayashi or Joey Chestnut, the uh, those famous competitive eaters. They're never they're never really big people, but they just their stomachs are like expandable or something. Stomachs are like balloons. Uh, one person must eat fifty chicken wings in under thirty minutes, so more than. Almost two wings per minute. Oh my god. And then title holders for Wing King receive their 50 wings for free. Plus a championship t-shirt. And they get their photo posted on the West End Tavern's website. Dang. Um, Let's see. Crown Candy Kitchen 5 Malt Challenge. Okay. This is one. This is more my speed. I think I might be able to try like a, because I love malts and milkshakes. I could, oh, 30, in this challenge, participants must drink five malts or milkshakes in 30 minutes. What? Why does it have to be, do they want you to like freeze your brain? Wait, now I need to see, I need to see like brain, are brain freezes dangerous like could the brain freeze be dangerous that's why i want to know if there's any doctors out there um dangerous that i'm sure they could be can brain freeze kill you i'm sure it can um maybe not maybe not kill a person do brain freezes call although there's no published paper saying much a milkshake slurp too quickly probably does uh probably does not actually lower brain temperature. Besides, uh, Gray says the temporary pain can't do any harm because it has nothing to do with the brain. Okay, so this person's saying, this is according to Pop Psy. They're saying brain freezes are not dangerous. Okay, that's good. Um, let's see. Back to, still though. I don't know if I could drink, because these are like big milkshakes too. They're at least, I think these are 24 ounces. That's maybe 20 ounces, 24. That's huge. Five of them in 30 minutes. Winners of the challenge receive a t-shirt and get their name added to the Crown Candy Kitchen's Wall of Winners. Highway 55 Burgers, this is the next one. Uh, Highway 55 Burgers, Shakes and Fries. It's a 5-5 challenge. Multiple locations across the U.S. Let's see what it is. Um, Eat a 55-ounce burger with at least four trimmings. That must mean like uh, toppings. 
plus fries and a 24-ounce drink in 30 minutes, and the meal is free. Plus, the winners get their name listed on the restaurant's website. So, 55-ounce burger, that's like, uh, that's doable. I could do that. I could eat a 55-ounce burger. How many? That's um, three pounds, seven ounces. So, like, three and a half pounds, basically, right? That's doable. I could, that's one I could do, I feel like. Um, there we go. So, there's one. I could do the milkshake one, too, I think. But 30 minutes is pushing it, though. That's for sure. That's for darn sure. You get six minutes per milkshake. Oh, my gosh. Does it matter what flavor they are? Can I go, like, Rocky Road, cookies and cream? Um. All right, let's see. This is the Round Rock Donuts, uh, two-pound donut challenge in Round Rock, Texas. There's no prize for this one, but eating this Texas-sized donut is no easy task. It's almost equal to eating a dozen donuts. Almost equal to eating a baker's dozen donuts, too. Uh, they should only refer to donuts and baker's dozens instead of dozens. Isn't that like what a baker's dozen is meant? That's like what it, that term was created for. Um, that's, that's one I could definitely do because there's no time limit on it. The time limit is the most difficult part about some of these. So... Two pound donut? That's that sounds delicious. Come on. Two pounds? That's not that much. Uh let's see. The next one. Chompy's restaurants. Ultimate slider challenge. Multiple re- uh, locations across the US. Challengers must finish a five pound platter of twelve Jewish sliders and a mountain of onion rings in thirty minutes or less. Winners receive a spot on Chompy's Wall of Fame. Five pound platter. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's no way. There's no way I could do that. Five pounds worth of sliders and a mountain of onion rings in 30 minutes? No way. I don't know how anyone could do that. I don't don't think Joey Chestnut could even do it. Alright, the next one. Harvey's Country Cupboard Attack the Stack Challenge in Big Run, Pennsylvania. It's a cool name for a town. Big Run. Um, this challenge requires participants to eat an extra large stack of pancakes. Hey, speaking of pancakes, maybe I'll include this challenge as a part of my pancake store that I open. I think I'm gonna call it the Pancake Boss. But the uh, the flap flapjack in the box was the working title for a little bit though. But I think we're going the Pancake Boss. Anywho. Eat, so you have to eat an extra large stack of pancakes with your choice of meat and two eggs. Winners receive a t-shirt and bragging rights, of course. Oh my gosh. And then I'm looking at a picture of these pancakes. And it is like... It's seriously like... Oh my gosh. What's the, the diameter? Is that the one that goes all the way across? And then the radius is the one that goes halfway? I'm going to say that the diameter on this thing is like... Almost four feet, it looks like. <laughs> this is like a pancake that's like three and a half to four feet wide. It's enormous. And there's a stack of them. Holy cow. Uh, holy Toledo. Okay, San Francisco Creamery Company. The Kitchen Sink Challenge in San Francisco, California. Challengers must eat three sliced bananas, eight scoops of ice cream, eight toppings, and a mounds of whipped cream. Uh, 
whipped cream, chopped toasted almonds, and cherries in a record-breaking time. That sounds like a delicious meal. Like, that doesn't sound like a burden. That sounds delicious. The current record is 16 minutes, 37 seconds. But if you break the record and win the challenge, you can win free ice cream for a year. For a whole year. And get your picture placed in a frame until another challenger can beat your time. That doesn't seem super fast. 16 and a half minutes or eight scoops of ice cream. Okay. I, I don't know. Oh, now I'm looking at it and it is quite, it's like, it's like three feet tall. So I think I spoke too soon. I don't think I could eat that in 16 and a half minutes. Man, I could definitely eat, like finish it for sure. But it'd probably take me like closer to 45 minutes, maybe two and a half hour. Let's see. I love looking at this kind of crazy food challenges. This one's Big Mama's at Papa's and Papa's Pizzeria. 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 I don't often read that word. I like Pizzeria. Pizzeria. (laughs) I think that's the Italian way to say it. Pizzeria. Welcome to my Pizzeria. The giant Sicilian... Pizza eating challenge. Multiple locations across Southern California. The Grand Sicilian Pizza Challenge is a team challenge. Seven people. Oh, I like the team challenges. Uh, seven people are given two hours to eat a 54 by 54 inch, 50 pounds, 50 pound pizza, five zero pounds. Oh my. One topping. Wait, you. You have to eat a 50-pound pizza, and you're only allowed to choose one topping for it? What would your topping be for your 50-pound pizza? I think I would go... I might go pineapple, honestly. Because it's, like, really light. And... Hmm. I, I don't know if I'd want... That'd be too much pepperoni. Uh, winners only get their... Not only get their meal for free, but can also win up to $1,000. And then I'm looking at a picture of it, and it seriously looks like... It looks like one of those giant American flags that they put on, they bring out on the football field uh, before NFL games during the national anthem. <laughs> what if they, what if they just brought out a giant pizza, one of those times? Oh my gosh, that's a great idea. I like it. It could be like an advertisement for the local food bank or something. Just next to the giant American flag, there's just. <laughs> There's just like 20 people holding a giant pizza. I like it. That's fun. Um, someone, someone, if you work in the uh, a front office of an NFL team, uh, run up the old, run that up the old flagpole. See and see what happens. Uh, let's see. Casa Blanca restaurant. The Mega Burrito Challenge in Santa Barbara, California. Finish this mega burrito in 30 minutes and win the meal and $500. Oh my god. There's no... I'm looking at a picture of it right now. I mean, they didn't describe how big it is, but I think the thing must be like... Definitely over 5 pounds. It's huge. It's like 4 feet long and like over 5 pounds for sure. There's no way anyone's eating that in 30 minutes. Maybe Kobayashi. Um, Let's see. Number 11, Jake's Sandwich Board, a five-pound Philly challenge um, in Philly, Philadelphia. 
Filigoy. Filigoy. Participants have 45 minutes to eat a two-foot steak, brisket, or pork sandwich weighing about three pounds, four soft pretzels, 12 tasty cakes, two dozen peanut chews, and a champ cherry soda. Winners get their meal comped. I feel like three of those things were super specific to the to the Philadelphia metropolitan area. <laughs> I didn't know what those last three things were. I don't know what a tasty cake is, or a peanut chew, or a champ cherry soda. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, go down to 54th and the in Laurel, Cherry Hill. Get go down to the Wawa. Get a water ice. Uh, there we go. That's what the the Sklar brothers do. They do the Philly. The Sklar brothers are the only comedians I've ever heard do a Philadelphia accent. And it's so funny. They're like, go down to the down to the Wawa on Fifty Fourth and get a water ice. I don't know how they do it. It's hilarious. They kind of they like swallow their L's. I think is what they say. Uh, something like that. <laughs> Philadelphia is an underused accent, though. Uh, Eagles Deli. The Eagles Challenge in Brighton, Massachusetts. Wicked awesome. Hey, you've been down to... Hey, how you doing? How you guys doing? You doing good? You've been down to Eagles Deli to the Eagles Challenge? Wicked awesome. Uh, the Eagles Challenge requires eating five pounds. Five pounds of burger... 20 pieces of bacon and 20 pieces of American cheese. Winners get a free meal, a t-shirt, their picture on the wall of fame, and a $100 gift card. Oh my god, I'm looking at a picture of the burger. <laughs> it's huge. It's like, I could see why it's five pounds, because it's like 12 patties stacked on top of each other, basically. It's absolutely ridiculous. You definitely have to go at it with a fork. Um, there you go. For some reason, I feel like Adam Richman, the man versus food guy, just feel like he he never uses a fork. That's just my prediction. But he, I bet he looks at it as a sign of weakness. He just always uses his hands <laughs> with pasta, with whatever. All right. I think now is a good time. No segue. That's right. No segue to it. Let's just do it. We do it every episode. It's AMC Triple Feature, baby. AMC Triple Feature, June 2009. AMC Movie Theater in Woodenville. It's with my best bud growing up, Steve Nungrak. June 2009, AMC Movie Theater, Woodenville, Washington. We had probably just gone out of school for the summer. And we went on over to the movies. To watch, yeah, I would go on to work at this movie theater uh, seven years later. Um, so we got tickets to year one. Yes, yes, year one, the caveman movie. Different than the Geico caveman. It's like a new look. New look caveman. Kind of, kind of like reminds me of a live action Flintstones, actually. If I had to describe it. Um, yep, Jack Black and Michael Sarah. Um, we talked about it in the Paul Rudd episode, episode four, because he makes a brief appearance in it as well. And after that one, we were not done with the movie watching because we walked on down to the other side of the movie theater. 
went through the obstacle course, the gauntlet, the uh, American Warrior obstacle course. <laughs> we crossed over the big balls, like the wipeout, the wipeout course. Come on, guys, wipeout. A great show on ABC. I've talked about it. It's kind of like a goofy version of American Warrior for everyday people. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm, now I'm just talking about Wipeout. I just stopped talking about AMC. No, we went through the obstacle course um, over the big balls, the Wipeout big balls, through the pit of mud, uh, climbed, jumped over the the square of uh, quicksand. <laughs> the quicksand pit. I don't know why they would have a pit of quicksand. Man, I used to be so... That used to be my number one fear in life, for sure, growing up. I think... I don't know. I, f- I feel like a lot of other people have that when they're when they're growing up. They're just scared of quicksand. Because there's just something about... About being like... Like, it's the slowest death. I think that's what was so frightening about it. Is you know that you're going to die for like a few hours... Or however long it takes. Um, I think we may have looked it up before. But I'm just going to pull it up. Just, I think we have looked it up before. But quicksand. We'll talk about it after the AMC triple feature. So interesting. So scary. Um, yeah. The idea of knowing, yeah, knowing that you're going to die. And knowing it for a few hours. And not being able to do anything about it. And then the more you do try to do about it. The quicker, the quicker you come to your demise, and it's just, yeah, that's probably the worst part about it is that, no much, no matter how much effort you put forth, you need like some, you need another person to save you. You you can't be by yourself. I think there's, pretty sure there's no getting out of it if you're by yourself. But that's just my amateur, I'm an amateur quicksand enthusiast, <laughs> amateur quicksand expert. Um, alas, we went on over to the other side of the movie theater and saw The Hangover. Ooh, great movie. Talked about it, episode three, Brody Stevens. Love this movie. One of the funniest comedies of all time. Um, can't go wrong with it. Can't go wrong with The Hangover. If you haven't seen it, check it. I'm sure you have. I'm sure you've seen the sequels too, probably. The sequels, they're exactly the same. Like the remember the second movie? It was basically it's just the same they were in Thailand. Um after the hangover, we went on over right to the other side of the aisle. We didn't even have to walk very far. Only had to go about five feet. Only had to jump over one baby crocodile that escaped the uh American warrior wipeout course. Um <laughs> Yep, we uh, hurdled the baby crocodile and went into, let's see, that must have been, that was Theater 10. So we saw The Hangover in Theater 9. We saw Year 1 in Theater 6. And we saw The Hangover in Theater 10. And, um, see, I know this because I used to work there before they remodeled it. They remodeled it after I stopped working there, so... So yeah, it's, it's changed. But um, yes, yes, yes. We went to Land of the Lost, and oh my gosh, what a terrible movie! What a what a crazy movie based on a TV show from the seventies. Um, I think you must maybe you have to be a fan of the show to like the movie or something. I don't know. 
but I, we just didn't understand it. Will Ferrell, we talked about episode one, Will Ferrell episode. Couldn't get into it. Don't know what it was. Wanted to like it. Excuse me. It was one of those things. Sometimes no matter how much you, you try to like something, it just doesn't quite work, you know? So, that was... That was an AMC. Why am I talking like that? That was an AMC triple feature, baby. Yes, it was fun. Good time. It was the the hangover sandwich, basically, basically a classic comedy sandwich. Um, let's see. Let's see what quicksand. People falling. I'm I'm looking at quicksand in popular culture. People falling into and unrealistically being submerged in quicksand for a similar or a similar substance is a trope of adventure fiction, nobly movies. According to Slate, this gimmick has heyday in the 1960s when almost 3% of all films showed someone sinking in clay, mud, or sand. <laughs> That's so funny. I love how they have stats on that. They're like, there's so much quicksand, we gotta get some stats on this. I'm a, I'm a quicksand statistician. That's like someone's job. Quicksand, quick, quick statistician. A quick, a quicksand statistician. <laughs> um, American television programs of the 1950s and 60s likewise portrayed the perils of quicksand in exaggerated dramatic fashion. In a 1963 episode of the Western television program, The Rifleman, for example, Two teens are portrayed venturing into a swamp and sinking in quicksand up to their necks, frantically yelling for help until rescued. Pete Seeger's song, Waist Deep in the Big Muddy, mentions someone drowning after getting stuck in quicksand. Let's see. A human is unlikely to sink entirely into quicksand and drown at all due to the higher density of the fluid. Um... Wow. So, apparently, continued or panicked movement, however, may cause a person to sink further in, in the quicksand. Okay, so don't panic. That's the advice. Um, since it increasingly impairs movement, it can lead to a situation where other factors, such as weather exposure, dehydration, hypothermia, tides, or carnivores may harm a trapped person. Quicksand may be escaped by slow movement of legs of the legs in order to increase viscosity of the fluid and rotation of the body so as to float in the supine position, which is lying horizontally with the face and torso facing up. The supine. Okay, so it's just basically lying on your back. So just slow movement of the legs. Just work your way out of there, baby. Hopefully you're not listening to this from from a quicksand pit right now. <laughs> um if you are call call for call for help. Just use your phone to call someone to to bring you to safety. Um <laughs> let's see. What else we got? Let's read a few more credits here. Let's hop on over back to Scarjo. Where did we leave? We left with the horse whisperer. Another animal movie. My brother the pig. 1999, Kathy Caldwell. 2001, The Man Who Wasn't There. She plays Birdie Abundas. 2001, Ghost World. She plays Rebecca. 
2001, An American Rhapsody, plays Susan at age 15. 2002, Eight-Legged Freaks, plays Ashley Parker. I think I remember this one, actually. I, David Arquette, yep, I do remember this. Of course, how could I forget an Arquette, an Arquette vehicle? Come on, he's a professional wrestler. Uh, PG-13, 99, oh wow, I was definitely too young to see it. Because I was 9 years old when it came out. And I probably saw it when I was like 10. Oh man, it's probably scarred me. That's probably why I'm scared of giant spiders. <laughs> That's why I'm scared of enormous monster spiders. 99 Minutes Action Adventure Comedy. Venomous spiders get exposed to a nauseous chemical that causes them to grow to monumental proportions. So it's like the monuments spiders instead of the monuments men. <laughs> There's a movies joke for you. The monuments spiders. Um. Okay, here's her first breakout vehicle here. 2003. Let's leave it. Let's leave that cliffhanger. That seemed like a good place for a cliffhanger. Speaking of cliffhangers, uh, we left y'all on a cliffhanger last episode with Carl Duker's Night Hoops. I can't get enough about this book. I can't get enough of it. Uh, it's based in my hometown, Bothell, Bothell, Washington. Um, it's written by Mr. Duker, who taught at my elementary school, and my brother had him in sixth grade. Uh, I never had Mr. Duker, but we've talked a lot about him, so <clears throat> let's just get into I'm loving this book. Bring back a flood of memories. Here we go. Chapter 8 of Part 2. Trent was back at tryouts the next day. As soon as he took the court, he handed a note to Coach O'Leary. I saw it, a scrawled thing in sloppy handwriting in, in pencil. O'Leary looked at it for a second, then started sputtering. What language is this? English? Spanish? Chinese? Nobody can write, read this slop. Nobody. He pulled a pen out of his pocket. You go in my office and write this over again so I can read it. When you've done that, you come back out and I'll take another look. Trent stood stock still for a moment. I thought it might be over right then and there, but he took O'Leary's pen and while we shot lanes, I could see him at O'Leary's desk, head down, rewriting his letter of apology. Finally, he came out and handed the apology to O'Leary again. That's something like it, O'Leary grumbled, after he'd read the letter slowly and carefully. Although, whoever taught you handwriting should return his paycheck to the state. He looked up. All right, then. That's over with. Get out there and play. As Trent hustled onto the court, O'Leary shouted after him, And keep that mouth of yours shut. You look back at little things and wonder if maybe they aren't so little. I was absolutely certain that the first time Trent had ever apologized to anyone in his life, um, that was the first time Trent had ever apologized to anyone in his life, and O'Leary had made him do it twice. Looking at Trent, you could see that inside him, he was all torn up, afraid he'd lost face. It wouldn't have taken much to set him off, and if there'd been a second blowout, it would have been the last one. It was an important day of tryouts. O'Leary had put my team up against a team that had Carver, Fabroa, and McShane. No more than a minute into the game, Trent ripped down a defensive rebound. He fed me with a quick outlet, exactly the way Coach O'Leary wanted. I raced the ball right up the center of the court. Luke filled the lane on my left, and Trent was on my right. I could have fed Luke. 
He was open, and he'd had a big game the day before. But Trent was open too, and he deserved the ball. Or maybe I should say he needed the ball. I feathered a soft pass to him. He soared for the lay-in. The ball hung on the lip of the rim, and for a second I wasn't sure it was going to drop. But then it did, and once that ball went through the hoop, it was as if the knots that had been tying him up were suddenly cut. He gave me his crooked smile, something I never thought would come my way. After that, Trent ran the court like a demon, crashed the boards harder than ever, and swished the jump shot I'd seen him practicing in the moonlight. With Luke hot, with Luke hot from behind the three-point stripe, and with me dishing out assists to both of them, we steamrolled those varsity guys, controlling the court and everything that happened on it. Our dominance was so complete that Matt Markey actually went after Luke, fouling him hard on a breakaway and then standing over him, fists clenched, glowering. But Luke played it cool, simply standing up and walking away, making Markey look so foolish that O'Leary laughed. As we walked home on Friday, Luke turned to me. What do you think, Nick? He can't cut us, can he? No way, I said. We're lock. He grinned. I think so, too. But I can hardly wait until Monday. We talked about O'Leary for a while and what it would be like to play for him. Then Luke brought up Trent. I think he'll make the team, thanks to you. You made him look like a star, and O'Leary likes his aggressiveness. He's good enough, but he flunked a whole bunch of classes last year, and he's flunking a whole bunch this year. You can't play if you don't pass, can you? Luke shook his head. Not where I came from. Dad came by Sunday. He took me to the Caddyshack driving range in Linwood. Neither of us is any good at golf, so we hacked away at the balls and talked. While we were hitting our second buckets, I told him I thought I made the team. What do you mean, you think? I won't know for sure until Monday. That's when they post the roster. He tilted his head. You know already, Nick. A player already knows. So did you make it or didn't you? I swallowed. I, d I made it. He reached over and rubbed the top of my head. That's my boy. Then, in a more serious tone, he continued. You remember what I said about the final shot? If you get the chance, you step up and take it. Don't be thinking that just because you're a sophomore, you've got to pass to some senior. You be the man. After we finished hitting golf balls, we ate fish and chips at the Ivars in Bothell Landing. Uh, I hoped we'd do something after lunch, maybe bike the trail again, but he drove me home. I've got to talk to your mom, he said, and after we stepped inside the front door, after we stepped inside the front door, business. I climbed upstairs and turned on the Sonics-Kings game, but underneath the play-by-play, -play, I could hear the two of them arguing about support payments and lawyers. After about an hour, I heard the pickup drive off. He hadn't even said goodbye. Boom. There we go. There's chapter 8 of part 2 right there. Love, love, love that book. Um, I thought that was funny that they mentioned the... that he mentioned Ivar's in Bothell Landing, because... That did used to be there. Uh, Mr. Duker is using real monuments. Um, he's using real people. Because like I said, I think he used my friend Kevin McShane's older brother, Tom McShane. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, yeah, the Ivars used to be there. But then they remodeled Bothell Landing. And um, they're building a bunch of stuff down there. Doing a ton of construction in downtown Bothell. So they took the Ivars down. As well as the... Uh, McDonald's it used to be there a long time ago too not a long time but it was there 
Um, let's see. <laughs> McDonald's, my favorite fast food restaurant. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. If you want to sponsor a show, McDonald's, hit me up. Ronald, if you're listening to this right now. Ray Kroc. Michael Keaton, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, that's actually a pretty good movie. The Founder, the one where Michael Keaton plays Ray Kroc. The, the guy who made McDonald's popular. He kind of kind of took the idea from the McDonald's family. But that's a good movie. Let's see. But right now, we're talking about Scarlett Johansson's movies. And we're talking about 2003, Lost in Translation. She plays Charlotte. This was like her big breakout role with Bill Murray. It's rated R, 102 minutes, drama. A faded movie star and a neglected young woman form an unlikely bond after crossing paths in Tokyo. The Simpsons definitely did do a uh, kind of a parody of this one too. Um, Girl with a Pearl Earring, 2003. She plays Griet. I've never seen that name. G R I E T. Griet. Griet. Video short, 2004, a love song for Bobby Long, deleted scenes. She plays Percy Will, 2004. Oh, she's in this one too? Who is in, she plays Francesca in The Perfect Score. Oh yes, this was uh, Chris Evans. We talked about this, episode 20, during the special Chris episode. We talked about uh, Chris Pratt, Pine... Evans and Hemsworth, all their movies, but um, ScarJo, ScarJo's in this one too, I talked about how much I love this movie, I saw it in theaters back in 2004, let's see if it was PG-13, it was PG-13, I was only 11, how did, I must have, we must have either snuck in or had our parents buy us the tickets or something, huh, uh, yeah, yeah. Love song, Bobby Long. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Oh, she's then she's in the movie A Love Song for Bobby Long. She played Percy Will, two thousand four. Then she's in A Good Woman. Plays Meg Windermere. Where she's that's a movie about real estate, I guess. Right, Windermere. Right. Um, let's see what it is about. It's a drum. It's a rom-com drama, drama comedy romance, ninety-three minutes PG. While retaining her secret identity, the illustrious Mrs. Erlen uh, saves Lady Windermere from making a social faux pas with a scoundrelly Lord Darlington. Scoundrelly. Um, Helen Hunt is also in it. The, a good woman. Uh, oh, she's in the SpongeBob SquarePants movie. The voice of Mindy. I don't remember a Mindy character in SpongeBob. Uh, but I'm sure I definitely saw that movie. Um, video game 2004, SpongeBob SquarePants movie. Voice of Mindy. 2004, In Good Company. She plays Alex. Let's see what this one's about. It's a rom-com drum, 109 minutes, PG-13. A middle-aged ad executive is faced with a new boss who's nearly half his age 
and who also happens to be sleeping with his daughter. Dennis Quaid and Topher Grace from that 70s show. What? That was an odd combo. Um, huh. 2005, Match Point. Heard this one too. She plays Nola Rice. 124 minutes, rated R, drama, romance, thriller. At a turning point in his life, a former tennis pro falls for an actress who happens to be dating his friend and soon-to-be brother-in-law. Jonathan Reese Myers. Okay. Oh, he's in the Tudors and the Viking show. All those, all them uh, Norwegian shows on Netflix. I see. 2005, The Island. She plays Jordan 2 Delta slash Sarah Jordan. Jordan 2, was this Shyamalan? No, it's Michael Bay. Ewan McGregor's in it. Uh, okay. Uh, 136 minutes. It's a long one. Action, romance, sci-fi. Well, most Michael Bay movies are long, right? PG-13. Probably a lot of CGI. It's kind of early CGI, though. It's only 2005. Um, let's see. A man living in a futuristic sterile colony begins to question his circum circumscribed existence when his friend is chosen to go to the island which is the last uncontaminated place on earth sounds like a one of those dystopia movies one of them dystopias 2006 scoop which plays sandra pransky i like that title it's it's good it's intrigued me Oh, of course, it's a journalism movie. An American journalism student in London scoops a big story and begins an affair with an aristocrat as the incident unfurls. Oh, very good. 96 minutes, PG-13, comedy, crime, mystery. That sounds kind of interesting. 2006, The Black Dahlia. She plays Kay Lake. That's I've heard of this one, too, but never seen it. Josh Hartnett, Hilary Swank, Aaron Eckhart, Two-Face, Hilary Swank is from uh, Washington, uh, let's see, Black Dahlia is 121 minutes, Raid R, crime, drama, mystery, two policemen see their personal and professional lives fall apart in the wake of the Black Dahlia murder investigation, okay, that's why I've heard of it, because it's, it's a famous... Now we got to see what the Black Dahlia murder is. Is it... It's an actress? What? Oh, 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 oh. Okay. I see. Um, <laughs> I hadn't... I may have heard of this person, but... Elizabeth Short, uh, July 29th, 1924 to January 14th. Or 15th, 1947, known posthumously as the Black Dahlia, was an American woman who was found murdered in the Limert Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. Her case became highly publicized due to the graphic nature of the crime, which included her corpse having been mutilated and bisected at the waist. Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah. 
She would acquire the nickname Black Dahlia posthumously after the owner of a drugstore in Long Beach, California told reporters that male customers had that name for her. Uh, huh. <laughs> As newspapers of the period often nicknamed partic particularly lurid crimes. The term may have originated from a film noir's murder mystery, The, Black, the Blue Dahlia, released in April 1946. After the discovery of her body on January 15, 1947, the LAPD began an extensive investigation that produced over 150 suspects but yielded no arrests. Excuse me. Holy cow. It's a lot of suspects. Short's unsolved, her unsolved murder and the details around it have had lasting um, cultural intrigue, generating various theories and public speculation. Okay, wow. Um, let's see what she what was what she do during her life. Uh, she she was relocated relocated to L.A. to visit Army. Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon. Um, she shortly before her death, she had been working as a waitress, and rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. Short had been described and depicted as an aspiring or would-be actress. According to some sources, she did she did in fact have aspirations to be a film star though she had no known acting jobs or credits. Okay, that's just a little a little bit about Black Dahlia. Okay, 2006. Oh, this was a great movie. Love this one. Olivia Winscombe in The Prestige. Great classic. Hugh Jackman in Christian Bale. My, Michael Caine. Are you going to do a magician trick? Are you going to pull a rabbit out of the hat? I've got a rabbit in my hat. My name is Michael Kine, and I've carried around this rabbit in my hat for the past six weeks. Okay, <laughs> um, this is a good movie. I definitely recommend this one, especially if you love, if you like magicians, if you like mysteries, if you like drama. If you like sci-fi, it's a long one, 100, 130 minutes, PG-13. After a tragic accident, two stage magicians engage in a battle to create the ultimate illusion while sacrificing everything they have to outwit each other. Yeah, so pretty much it's just, it's like a magician battle rap, basically. It's like a, it's like a magician roast. They go head to head and they roast each other, but the only way the magicians roast each other is by what having doves fly out of their jackets and putting spells on each other and all that stuff. Um, saying vol vol. Oh, I almost said it. I almost said the he he who shall not be named. I started to say it, but then I stopped myself and I was like, I don't want to have any dark spirits haunting the. A Star is Born podcast, so I'm just going to go ahead. <laughs> not that I'm super, <laughs> super superstitious or anything. I'm just going to go ahead and not say, he who shall not be named. Vo oh, no. <laughs> um, 2006 video short. 
Bob Dylan, When the Deal Goes Down. Video short, 2007, Justin Timberlake, What Goes Around Comes Around. 2007, Nanny Diaries, The Nanny Diaries, which plays Annie Bredock. This is definitely one that she was well known for. I remember I remember back in the day when when this movie came out, everyone knew Scarjo for the uh they knew her for the Nanny Diaries. It's a rom com drum, hundred five minutes, PG thirteen. A college graduate goes to work as a nanny for a rich New York family. Ensconced in their home, she has to juggle their dysfunction a new romance, and the spoiled brat in her charge. I don't... I must have seen it. I probably saw it, but I don't remember if I have. 2008, The Other Bolin Girl. She plays Mary Bolin. I wonder if she's the other one. Now we gotta see. Two sisters contend for the affection of King Henry VIII. 115 minutes, biography, drama, history. PG-13. Natalie Portman is in it, too. And Eric Bana. One of the Hulks. Um, oh my gosh. She's in the show that all actors have been in. We've had, like, pretty much half the actors we've talked about have been in the show. At least. So let's leave that little cliffhanger there. And let's take a little peek at The Tao of Pooh by Benjamin Hoff. This is um, just a little book that was on my bookshelf at home. My mom, it's definitely something that my mom got because she likes this um, kind of like yoga, Buddhist kind of relaxation mind stuff. So here we go. Let's just take a little peek at it. <clears throat> I read a little bit of this last episode. This is the Tao of Who. This chapter is called the Tao of Who. We were discussing the definition of wisdom late one night, and we were just about to fall asleep from it all when Pooh remarked that his understanding of Taoist principles had been passed down to him from uncertain, from certain ancient ancestors. Like who, I asked. Like Pooh Taoisi, the famous Chinese painter. Pooh said, that's Wu Taoisi. Or how about Li Pooh, the famous Taoist poet? Who asked cautiously, You mean Li Po? I said, Oh, I said Pooh, looking down his feet. <laughs> then I then I thought something funny. Then I thought of something. That doesn't that doesn't really matter anyway, I said, because one of the most important principles of Taoism was named after you. Really? Pooh asked, looking more hopefully. Of course. Pooh, the uncarved block. I'd forgotten, said Pooh. So here we are, about to explain Pooh, the uncarved block. In the classic Taoist manner, we won't try too hard or explain too much, because that would only confuse things, and because it would leave the impression that it was all only an intellectual idea that could be left on the intellectual level and ignored. Then you could say, well, this idea is all very nice, but what does it amount to? So instead, we will try to show what it amounts to in various ways. Pooh, by the way, is pronounced sort of like poo, but without so much oo, like the sound you make when blowing a bug off your arm on a hot summer day. I'll just say poo, though. Uh, before, we 
bring our resident expert in for a few illuminating remarks, let's explain something. The essence of the principle of the uncarved block is that things in their original simpl simplicity contain their own natural power, power that is easily spoiled and lost when that simplicity is changed. For the written character Pu, the typical Chinese dictionary will give a definition of natural, simple, plain, honest. Pu is composed of two separate characters combined. The first, the radical or root meaning one, is that for tree or wood. The second, the phonetic or sound giving one, is the character for dense growth or thicket. So from tree in a thicket or wood not cut comes the meaning of things in their natural state. What is generally represented in English versions of Taoist writing as the uncarved block. This basic Taoist principle applies not only to things in their natural beauty and function, but to people as well, or bears, which brings us to Pu, the very epitome of the uncarved block. As an illustration of the principle, he may appear a bit too simple at times. I think it's more to the right, said Piglet nervously. What do you think, Pu? Um, Pu looked at his, own, at his two paws. He knew that one of them was the right, and he knew that when you had decided which one of them was right, then the other one was the left. But he never could remember how to begin. Well, he said slowly. But no matter how he may seem to others, especially to those fooled by appearances, Pooh, the uncarved block, is able to accomplish what he does because he is simple-minded. As any old Taoist walking out of the woods can tell you, Simple-minded does not necessarily mean stupid. It's rather significant that the Taoist ideal is that of the still, calm, reflecting, mere mind of the uncarved block. It's rather significant that Pooh, rather than the thinker's rabbit, Al, or Eeyore, is the true hero of Winnie the Pooh in the house at Pooh Corner. The fact is, said Rabbit, we've missed our way somehow. They were having a rest in a small sandpit, on top of the forest, Pooh was getting rather tired of the sand pit and suspected it of followed it of following them about because whichever direction they started in, they always ended up at it. And each time, as it came through the mist at them, Rabbit said triumphantly, "Now I know where we are." And Pooh said sadly, "So do I." And Piglet said nothing. He had tried to think of something to say, but the only thing he could think was, "Help, help!" And it seemed silly to say that when he had Pooh and Rabbit with him. Well, said Rabbit, after a long silence in which nobody thanked him for the nice walk they were having, we'd better get on, I suppose. Which way shall we try? How would it be, said Pooh slowly, if, as soon as we're out of sight of this pit, we try to find it again? What's the good of that, said Rabbit? Well, said Pooh, we keep looking for home and not finding it, so I thought that if we looked for this pit, we'd be sure not to find it, which would be a good thing, because then we, we might find something that we weren't looking for, which might be just be something, which might just be what we were looking for, really. I don't see much sense in that, said Rabbit. If I walked away from this pit and then walked back to it, of course I should find it. Well, I thought perhaps you wouldn't, said Pooh. I just thought, try said Piglet suddenly. We'll wait here for you. Uh -huh. Rabbit gave a laugh to show how silly Piglet was and walked into the mist. 
After he had gone a hundred yards, he turned and walked back again. And after Pooh and Piglet had waited twenty minutes for him, Pooh got up. I just thought, Pooh said Pooh, now then, Piglet, let's go home. But Pooh cried Piglet all excited, do you know the way? No, said Pooh, but there are twelve pots of honey in my cupboard, and they've been calling to me for hours. I couldn't hear them properly before, because Rabbit would talk. But if nobody says anything except those twelve pots, I think, Piglet, I shall know where they're calling from. Come on. They walked off together, and for a long time, Piglet said nothing, so as not to interrupt the pots. And then suddenly he made a squeaky noise and an oo noise, because now he began to know where he was, but he still didn't dare to say so out loud in case he wasn't. And just when he was getting so sure of himself that it didn't matter whether the pots went on calling or not, there was a shout in front of them, and out of the mist came Christopher Robin. After all, if it were, if it were cleverness that counted most, Rabbit would be number one instead of the, that bear. But that's not the way things work. We've come to wish you a very happy Thursday, said Pooh. Hey, it's Thursday. Uh, when he had gone in and out once or twice just to make sure that he could get out again. Why? What's going to happen on Thursday? asked Rabbit. And when Pooh had explained, and Rabbit, whose life had ma- whose life was made up of important things, said, Oh, I thought you'd really come come about something. They sat down for a little, and by and by, Pooh and Piglet went on again. The wind was behind them now, so they didn't have to shout. Rabbit's clever, said Pooh thoughtfully. Yes, said Piglet, Rabbit's clever, and he has a brain. Yes, said Piglet, Rabbit has a brain. There was a long silence. I suppose, said Pooh, that that's why he never understands anything. And if Clever Rabbit doesn't quite have what it takes, abrasive Eeyore certainly doesn't either. Why not? Because of what we we could call the Eeyore attitude. You might say that while Rabbit's little routine is that of knowledge for the sake of being clever, and while Owl's is that of knowledge for the sake of appearing wise, Eeyore's is knowledge for the sake of complaining about something. As anyone who doesn't have... It can see that your attitude gets in the way of things like wisdom and happiness and pretty much prevents any sort of real accomplishment in life. Eeyore, the old gray donkey, stood by the side of the stream and looked at himself in the water. Pathetic, he said. That's what it is. Pathetic. He turned and walked slowly down the stream for 20 yards, splashed across it, and walked slowly down uh, back on the other side. Then he looked at himself in the water again. As I thought, he said, no better from this side, but nobody minds, nobody cares, pathetic, that's what it is. There was a crackling noise in the bracken behind him, and out came Pooh. Good morning, Eeyore, said Pooh. Good morning, Pooh Bear, said Eeyore gloomily. If it is a good morning, he said, which I doubt, said he. Why, what's the matter? Nothing, Pooh Bear, nothing. We can't at all, and some of us don't. That's all there is to it. It's not that the Eeyore attitude is necessarily without a certain severe sort of humor. Hello, Eeyore, they called out cheerfully. Ah, said Eeyore, lost your way? Um, we just came to see you, said Piglet, and to see how your house was. Look, Pooh, it's still standing. 
I know, said Eeyore. Very odd. Somebody ought to have come down and pushed it over. We wondered whether the wind would blow it down, said Pooh. Ah, that's why nobody's bothered, I suppose. I thought perhaps they'd forgotten. It's just that it's really not so awfully much fun. Not like a few other points of view we can think of. A little too complex or something. After all, what is it about Pooh that makes him so lovable? Well, to begin with, said Pooh. Yes, well, to begin with, we have the principle of the uncarved block. After all, what is the most appealing thing about Pooh? Uh, appealing thing about Pooh? What else but, well, to begin with, simplicity. The simplicity of the uncarved block. And the nicest thing about that simplicity is its useful wisdom. The what-is-there-to-eat variety wisdom you can get at. Considering that, let's have Pooh describe the nature of the uncarved block. All right, Pooh, what can you tell us about the uncarved block? The what? asked Pooh, sitting up suddenly and opening his eyes. The uncarved block, you know. Oh, the, oh. What do you have to say about it? I didn't do it, said Pooh. You, it must have been Piglet, he said. I did not, squeaked Piglet. Oh, Piglet, where did you, I didn't, Piglet said. Well, then, it was probably Rabbit, said Pooh. It wasn't me, Piglet insisted. Did someone call, said Rabbit, popping up from behind the chair. Oh, Rabbit, I said, we're talking about the uncarved block. Haven't seen it, said Rabbit, but I'll go ask Al. That won't be necessary, I began. Too late. Too late now, said Pooh. He's gone. I never even heard of the uncarved block, said Piglet. Neither did I, said Pooh, rubbing his ear. It's just a figure of speech, I said. A what of a who? asked Pooh. A figure of speech. It means that, well, the uncarved block is a way of saying, like Pooh. Oh, is that all? said Piglet. I wondered, said Pooh. Pooh can't describe the uncarved block to us in words. He just is it. That's the nature of the uncarved block. A perfect description. Thank you, Pooh. Not at all, said Pooh. When you discard arrogance, complexity, and a few other things that get in the way, sooner or later you will discover that simple, childlike, and mysterious secret unknown to those of the uncarved block. Life is fun. Now, one autumn morning, when the wind has had blown all the leaves off the trees in the night and was trying to blow the branches off too, Pooh and Piglet were sitting in the thoughtful spot and wondering, what I think, said Pooh, is I think we'll go to Pooh Corner and see Eeyore, because perhaps his house had been has been blown down, and perhaps he'd like us to build it again. What I think, said Piglet, is I think we'll go and see Christopher Robin, only he won't be there, so we can't. Let's go and see everybody, said Pooh, because when you've been walking in the wind for miles, and suddenly you go into somebody's house, and he says, Hello, Pooh. You're just in time for a little smackerel of something, and you are, then it's what I call a friendly day. Piglet thought that they ought to have a reason for going to see everybody, like looking for a small, looking for small or organizing an expedition, if Pooh could think of something. Pooh could. We'll go because it's Thursday, and we'll go to wish everybody a very happy Thursday. Come on, Piglet. From the state of the uncarved block comes the ability to enjoy the simple and the quiet, the natural and the plain, 
Along with that comes the ability to do things spontaneously and have them work, odd as that may appear to others at times. As Piglet put in Winnie the Pooh, Pooh hasn't much brain, but he never comes to any harm. He does silly things and they turn out right. To understand all this a little better, it might help to look at someone who is quite the opposite. Someone like, well, say, Owl, for example. And we'll look at Owl. We'll talk about that next episode when we read more about the Tao of Pooh from Benjamin Hoff. I really like that, though. I enjoy that book. I think I was a big Winnie the Pooh. I was a big Pooh, Pooh guy back in the day growing up. A Pooh, what do you call him? A Pooh head? No. Pooh. What were Winnie the Pooh fans called? Um, I don't know. It's too inappropriate. <laughs> it's too too dirty. Uh, let's see. Let's let's do a few more Scarjos. Man, we're we're flying through this. Oh yes, here we go. We are flying. I'm having fun though. It's still a beautiful day outside. The sun's out. Snow is melting in Pullman. Pullman is melting. This is that one TV show that everybody's in. We've seen it time and time again on A Star Is Born. Robot Chicken, 2005 to 2008. She plays Dolores, wife, Lisa, Veronica, excuse me, uh, Veronica Lodge, Sailor Moon, herself, Della B. Robinson, Amy, Darlene, Darlene, cheerleader, stick, and tooth fairy. Um, Vicky Cristina Bartolona. She plays Cristina Bartolona. We talked about this one in the, uh, what, when did we, was it Penelope Cruz? We definitely talked about this one. I'm looking to see, I believe it was, pretty sure it was a Penelope Cruz one. Yeah, it was, yep. Here's a, I still know why she wasn't listed. IMDb does that weird thing when they're listing the top build cast, and then sometimes they don't list the top people. You know, so we talked about that one in the uh, Penelope Cruz episode. It's a uh, Barcelona, um, the Spirit, two thousand eight, Silken Floss. What she plays Silken Floss? Is that someone's name? <laughs> I thought that was a type of floss for a second. I was like, I've never heard of that one. <laughs> Is that does Crest do that? Is that Colgate or Silken Floss? Sounds fancy. Um, let's see what this is about. <laughs> the Spirit, PG-13, 103 minutes. Action, crime, fancy. Rookie cop, Denny Colt. Wow. Now that's a, that's a, a quarterback straight out of Friday Night Lights right there. Denny Colt. Hey, coach. Coach, Denny Colt. Um, returns from the beyond as the Spirit. A hero whose mission is to fight against the bad forces in Central City. Okay. Okay. Uh, he's just not that into you. 2009. She plays Anna. This was the one that they... I think they did the remake of this and did a... She's just not that into you. Recently. A rom-com drum. 129 minutes. Dang, a long rom-com. Over two hours. PG-13. 
Um, let's see. This this Baltimore set movie of interconnecting story arcs deals with the challenges of reading or misreading human behavior. Oh, so it sounds like a psychological thriller or something. A psychological romance movie. Uh, 2010. Iron Man 2. She wasn't in the first one, though. She plays Natalie Rushman slash Natasha Romanoff. I remember watching that one in junior year English. We watched Iron Man 2. In class. I don't know. Didn't really have anything to do with any curriculum or anything, but we must have been uh, near the end of the year or something. Uh, maybe our teacher was hungover. <laughs> Mrs. Lyman. She was super nice. Uh, 2011. We bought a zoo. Kelly Foster. This was the... um, Was this the Matt Damon one? Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about this one again in the Matt Damon episode. But let's just talk about it right now. It's comedy. It's a drama. It's a family. A drum-com fam. 124 minutes, red PG. Set in Southern California, a father moves his young family to the countryside to renovate and reopen a struggling zoo. So I wonder how that's different than the Kevin James zoo movie. Seems like a little more serious version, that's for sure. Um, just got, I guess I got a Paul Blart on my mind. From a, I guess I'm thinking about. That podcast, Till Death Do Us Blart, the the only once a year podcast I listen to. Release they they rewatch um Paul Blart Paul Blart two, uh every single year and they talk about it. They release an episode on Thanksgiving, so uh, there's a little treat. <laughs> it's funny. It's like you know why I like it. It's because it's one of my favorite movie genres. It's a it's a reunion podcast. Every single episode they do is a reunion. Because they haven't talked to each other for a whole year, basically. I mean, I think some of them might be, they might be friends, so they might talk to each other. But that's why. It's because it's a reunion podcast. Um, a lot of my other favorite movie genres. Comedy, horror, heist, and still debating if we should let this one in. Into the Hall of Fame of movie genres. Um, the writers are still... The Veterans Committee is still voting on this one. It's a Boardwalk. Hmm. Does Boardwalk qualify as a genre of movie? I do not know. But if it does, it's one of my favorites. Let's see. <laughs> 2012. Oh, okay. The Avengers. Natasha Romanoff slash Black Widow. 2012... Hitchcock, she plays Janet Lee. Not not to be confused with the Will Smith action hero movie, Hancock. Uh, this is Hitchcock. It's about the relationship between Alfred Hitchcock and his wife, Alma Reville, during the filming of Psycho, 1960. Um, okay. Helen Mirren plays Alma Reville, and Anthony Hopkins plays Alfred Hitchcock. Okay, it's one of those biography, a biopic. Okay, this one we talked about. We talked about Don John already. This was, who was in, 
Was Anne Hathaway in this one? Um, was it? Okay, it was. I think it was Anne Hathaway in this one. We've talked about it. It's good. I like this movie. It's a Joe Gord Lev. Joseph Gordon Levin. Joe Gord Lev. He's pretty funny in it. It's like it's almost like a he kind of plays the situation from Jersey Shore. I just realized that. This movie is like kind of like it seems like he's playing his version of the situation. It's based on it's based on his life. <laughs> it's a biopic once again. Um 2013 Okay, this is one of those alien, futuristic kind of robot movies I was talking about in the very beginning. Uh, Under the Skin. She plays the female. Let's see what this one's. 108 minutes. Drama, horror, sci-fi. Rated R. A mysterious young woman seduces lonely men in the evening hours in Scotland. However, events lead her to begin a process of self-discovery. Yeah, that's very vague, but she's in a lot of international movies, too, as we'll see here. ScarJo is quite the international superstar. Um, This one we talked about. We talked about the uh, the bar graph or the line graph that I made for this movie um, based on what year it was and the height of the person's pants. And this is for the movie Her. Um, she plays the voice of Samantha. Wow, Scar- oh, that's right. Scarlett Johansson is the voice of the uh, the robot girl in this movie. The main character, basically. But, um, yeah. This is the one with all the characters who have the pants that are super high. Super fun. Um, guess that's what the future... That's what the near future is like. It's really the only thing that changes. Uh, 20. And, and we have, um, I guess there already are, like, sex dolls. People use sex dolls. It's kind of the same thing. They just don't talk. <laughs> they haven't figured out the robot part yet, but the scientists are, they're on, they're on the trail. They're hot on the trail of it right now. Figuring out the whole ex machina thing, you know? You know, uh, let's see. A TV show from 2014. Hit record on TV. We just talked about this one too. Uh, she plays Olivia in the segment two player game for one episode. Ah, she's in 2014 Chef. She plays Molly. I love this movie. Um, I can't remember if we talked about it yet, but I've definitely brought it up before. Ah, David Sedaris's sisters in this movie. Amy Sedaris. Speaking of the Calypso update. Um, Chef. Yeah, this is definitely one of my... I mean, I say, like, one of my favorites about, like, every movie, but... This is... I I think it's safe to say it's my favorite food movie. My favorite foodie movie. Um, 114 minutes. Rate R. Adventure, comedy, drama. A head chef quits his restaurant job and buys a food truck in an effort to reclaim his creative promise. While piecing back together his estranged family. Um, this just reminds me, I don't know if I've mentioned it, but when I was working at Red Robin, 
one of the other one of the chefs there, we were we were back by the the trash compactor, and he told me about a story that when he was living in he was living in Southern California, oh it was some famous person's restaurant. I can't remember. Dang, I can't remember who whose chain of restaurants it was. I think it was a. It could have been Miles Davis. It. I may have told you guys this actually. I think I can't remember if I I'll just tell you anyway. Um I may have said this already but I think it was uh, it's like Miles Davis or some other like blues singers Chuck Berry maybe. I don't know. There were like line of restaurants he worked for and um there's there's a person apparently who was murdered and their body was discovered in the trash compactor. So that's what he told me when we were throwing the garbage in the trash compactor and they never figured out who did it. And I was like, "Oh my god." <laughs> that sounds like the beginning of a one of my books that I want to write in the future. I was just like, I think I I made note of it for sure. I was like, I'm going to remember this. That's a that sounds like a really suspenseful beginning. You know, like a cold open of a movie. Can you imagine? But I thought that was crazy. Um, let's see. Captain America, The Winter Soldier, 2014. Natasha Romanoff slash Black Widow. Oh, yeah. I also want to mention John Favreau kind of plays like a... He's kind of like a Guy Fieri. <laughs> I don't know why, but he just kind of reminds me of Guy Fieri in this movie, in Chef. So... Just want to throw that out there. Less um, less frosted tips, so less highlights in his hair. But um, <laughs> more food truck though, that's for sure. Guy Fieri, Guy Fieri. I guess you have to pronounce it right, right? Guy Fieri. He doesn't really. I don't know. Does he do the food truck thing? I'm not sure. Have not seen the show much. Someone hit me up on hit me on Twitter. If you're Guy Fieri listening to this, uh, Mr. Fieri. Uh, short 2014, Deep Down. She's the narrator. Oh, here's another one of those crazy movies. 2014, Lucy. She plays a Lucy. What's this one about? Action, sci-fi, thriller, 89 minutes, rated R. A woman... Accidentally caught in a dark deal, turns the tables on her captors, and transforms into a merciless warrior evolved beyond human logic. Oh my gosh. So it's like, oh yes, this is this is the one where she has the ability to use like 100% of her brain. Because like apparently humans only use like, what, 10% of their brains or something? That was like the big stat that was being thrown around around the time Lucy was released. The Lucy, the Lucy marketing team was putting that stat out there, just to hype up their their movie. Um, let's see, TV miniseries, twenty fifteen, Assassin Banana. She plays Pink Lady for two episodes. What? I want to see what this says. Twenty four minutes comedy. After seeing his wife brutally murdered by Doctor Tomato's henchmen. Billionaire Banana Chick Del Monte fights crime as masked vigilante assassin Banana, hell bent on revenge. Excuse me. 
and he's voiced by Nathan Fillion, who is um Castle. Yes, of course. And Firefly. But I know him more for Castle. He's like uh Mr. Mr. USA Network, I guess. Captain USA Network. <laughs> uh USA, characters welcome. FX, Fearless, uh, 2015 Avengers, Age of Ultron, haven't seen any of these Avengers movies, Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow, 2016 Hail Caesar, she plays Deanna Moran, Moran, I remember when this one came out, this was when I worked at AMC, I worked at the movie theater, but I did not get the chance to see this one for free. Cohen Brothers movie. Um, a lot of a lot of people in this one too, a lot of big names: Josh Brolin, George Clooney, Aiden Ehrenreich from um, the new Star Wars, Ralph Fine, Tilda Swinton, Channing Tatum, Francis McDormand, Jonah Hill, Allison Pill. A lot of people. A Hollywood fixer in the 1950s works to keep the studio's stars in line. 106 Minutes, PG-13, comedy, drama, music. And George Clooney's. I think George Clooney plays that fixer. Or actually, no, George Clooney's one of the stars. Because I remember he was wearing like a suit and armor in the commercials. Um... Let's see. The Jungle Book. Yes, this was a big one too. Speaking of John Favreau, he directed this one. She's the voice of Ka. Um, this was based on I, I don't think I saw this one. 106 minutes PG adventure drama family. It's based on like the what TV show from the 90s. After a threat from the tiger, Shere Khan forces him to flee the jungle. A man-cub named Mowgli Mowgli, embarks on the journey of self-discovery with the help of panther Bagheera and free-spirit bear Baloo. Um, This is the uh, Bear Necessities. That's when they sing that song. It's the Bear Necessities. Oh, I'm... Stretching my back out right now. You can join me. Where where you are. Even if you're on a airplane, maybe. At the beach. On a monorail. On a bus. Greyhound. Going for a walk. Sitting at work. Making breakfast. Going to bed. Whatever you're doing. Give it a good stretch. Very good. Alright. Get myself sorted here. Um, Captain America, Civil War, Natasha Romanoff, uh, Black Widow, 2016, Sing, she was in a lot of stuff, 2016, this is another cartoon, uh, she's the voice of Ash, this one actually looked pretty funny, I remember, I think this one also came out while I was still at AMC, In a City of Humanoid Animals, that sounds weird. Humanoid animals. That's a disgusting way to describe them. A hustling theater impr- impresarios. A 
attempt to save his theater with a singing competition becomes grander than he anticipates, even as his finalists find that their lives will never be the same. Yeah, it's, it looks pretty funny. Like, I think it was kind of Matthew McConaughey's voice in it. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Uh, <laughs> I think it was kind of a play on American Idol. That's what they were doing. They were making fun of all those old... Remember when American Idol used to be just all just terrible auditions? Like, that's what they used to focus on? Like, I don't even know what they do now because, I mean, I don't watch it anymore. But I've not, I haven't seen it. They switched networks. I thought that was crazy. Um, wow. I think now is a good time for me. Refresh myself, grab some water, go to the bathroom, t- take a little break. And while I take the break, I want you all to think about, well, think about your favorite American Idol contestants. And we'll have to, maybe we'll explore that when we come back. Right in a second. Hey, 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 yo, 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 I'm back. How was your break? I hope it was good. Did you get a chance to brainstorm some of your favorite American Idol contestants of all time? Um, I did. I think some of my favorites are, let's see, from Justin to Kelly, of course. Uh, Justin Guarini and Kelly Clarkson, right? Uh, Kelly Pickler as well. Uh, Ruben Studdard and Clay Aiken, of course. They were in the same season. That was Gosh, that was maybe the best season ever was Ruben and Clay. Ruben versus Clay. I think they were the final two. Um, Taylor Hicks, the guy who was like 29 years old and he had gray hair. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> um, he was good, though. He was, I wonder if he's still making music. Um, Adam Lambert was another. He's He's been, he's still around. I think he's on the radio. I get him mixed up with Adam Levine, the Maroon 5 guy. I'm sure other people have that have that issue. Um, let's see. I want to see any other big American Idol. I'm trying to... I'm racking my brain. I haven't seen it for... I mean, did we already look at... I can't remember if we've already looked at a list of winners for American Idol. I don't think we have. Oh, yes. Jordan Sparks, of course. Season six, uh, David Cook, of course. Gotta leave the light on when I'm gone. Something to remind me where my home. Someone leave the light on when I'm gone. Um, oh, what was his name? Oh, Lee DeWise, I remember him. But, uh, Chris Daughtry. Wasn't Chris Daughtry on American Idol? He has some good songs, too. He has that song, the home song. Well, I'm coming home to the place where I belong. And it's always been enough. I'm going to look up. All right, Chris Daughtry. Is it Chris Tomlin? Oh, it's Chris Daughtry, right? Yep, home, Chris Daughtry. Well, I'm going home to the place where I belong. Where your love has always been enough for me. I'm not running from. No, I think you got me all wrong. I don't regret this life chose for me. But these places and these faces are getting old. 
So I'm going home. Well, I'm going home. I'm going home to a place where I belong. That's such a good. God, if you haven't heard that song, guys, by um, Chris Daughtry. Oh my gosh, the chorus of that song. That that's what I call. It gets me goosebumps. It gets me pumped up. Makes me want to go play. A full court, forty-eight minute basketball game, with referees and everything, and and uh, those pads that you wipe your shoes off on the sideline, and like some chalk I can throw up in there. Um, uh, here's the other one. Try to leave a light on when I'm gone. Something I rely on to get home. Yeah, okay. That was, that was enough of that one. That was David Cook. One of the other American Idol people. Um, let's see. Any other American Idol peeps? Uh, Carrie Underwood, of course. Um, I've heard of Scott McCreary. But he's in Philip Phillips, of course. What's that one Philip Phillips song? He has a one very popular song. Um, oh, it's also called Home. <laughs> I can't remember how his... See, all these songs called Home. Of course, there's a Michael Buble... I've actually sang that one at the beginning of the podcast before. The one that goes... Wait, how does the Buble one go? It goes, um... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's too tough to... I guess I'll have to look it up. <laughs> While I'm doing that, you guys can think of your other favorite... Who's your favorite judge in American Idol? Of the original three judges. Not the... No new ones. Um, Who is it? Randy? Paula? Or Simon? Gosh. Hmm. Oh, yes. This is how the song goes. Another aeroplane. Another sunny place. I'm lucky, I know. But I want to go home. Mmm, I've got to go home. Let me go home. Home. I'm just too far. From where you are, and I want to come home. And it feels just like I'm living someone else's life. It's like I just stepped outside when everything was going right. And I know just why you could not come along with me. But this was not your dream. But you always believe in me. Another winter day has come and gone away. And even Paris and Rome. Let me go home. Oh, let me go home. And I'm surrounded by a million people. I still feel alone. And oh, let me go home. Oh, I miss you, you know. Let me go home. I've had my run. Baby, I'm done. I gotta go home. Let me go home. It will all be alright. I'll be home tonight. 
I'm coming back home. Mmm. Mmm. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. I like those songs. Lots of that's a common theme for sure. Okay. Home is a common theme. This was a great season. Fantasia. Remember Fantasia? Back in 2004, she won it. Season 3. Wow. Who's the winner? Oh, Ruben. Oh, my gosh. Ruben vs. Clay was season 2. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe how long ago that was. Uh, Taylor Hicks was season 5. Um... Taylor Hicks, Taylor Hicks, do I make you proud? I feel like that's a good song. Do I make you proud? That's one of his, that's his most well-known song, so I'm sure I've heard it on the radio. All right, it's such a sidetrack. Speaking of sidetracks, let's just keep this sidetrack train, train going. Keep this sidetrack train chugging along. I'm going to go ahead and... Read another chapter of my favorite book of all time, Night Hoops by Carl Duker. Here we go. Uh, Chapter 9 of Part 2. I made the team. When I saw my name on the list, I felt exhilarated, but it wasn't like winning a million dollars. Dad had been right. A guy does know where he belongs. As Luke and I stared at the list, it was as if we were both checking on something that we knew had to be. We'd stared at our names for a minute, when I spotted Trent's name at the bottom of the page with an asterisk after it. What do you think that means? Grades, I bet. Just like you thought. You think he'll hit the books now? Somehow I can't see Dawson studying. Luke shrugged. Give the guy some credit. You never thought he'd stick through tryouts either. Practice was different from tryouts. It wasn't just that there were 12 guys where there had been 30. During tryouts, O'Leary had stood back and watched us play. At practice, he had every minute orchestrated. The running gun showtime stuff was over. We stretched, we ran, we did passing and fast break drills. Then came a chalk talk. O'Leary knew the game in a way that no other coach I'd ever had knew it. Double downs, rotation to the ball, weak side held. He explained all those things you hear about on TV but don't really understand. And he explained not only what they were but also how to do them. When the chalk talk ended, we walked through the plays we learned. Then we had a controlled scrimmage, which means he blew the whistle every time someone made a mistake, which was about every 10 seconds. After that, we ran more fast break drills, had another chalk talk, and ran some more. We hardly had time to breathe, let alone think, before O'Leary was saying, All right, gentlemen, that's it for today. Remember, on time tomorrow and every day. No excuses. During practice, Trent had had to do all the grunt work, the stretching, the running, the fast break drills. When it came to the fun part, the actual scrimmaging, he was off to the side, forgotten, used only when somebody needed a rest. It made sense. He wasn't eligible, so why waste precious practice time on him? Still, it had to be rough. And what happened after practice had to be rough, too. As soon as O'Leary blew the whistle, he led Trent into his office and sat him down at the desk in there. While the rest of us showered and shot the breeze, Trent was in that little room, still wearing his gym clothes, doing his schoolwork. When Luke and I walked out of the locker room and across the gym to go home, 
He was still there, sitting in his sweats with his head over a book. I went home, ate some dinner, did my homework. By 9.30, I was beat, absolutely exhausted. I lay on my on my bed and turned on, turned on the radio, too tired to do anything else. And it was right about then that I heard a basketball being dribbled in the backyard, heard Steve Clay and Trent talking in their low voices. I was amazed. Where did Trent find the energy? I don't know how long they stayed that night or on the other nights either. Not even the constant thump, thump, thump of a basketball on concrete could keep me awake. That was a short chapter. Let's do another one for funsies. Chapter 10. Our opening game was on Thursday in early December. By the end of practice on Tuesday, my legs were totally dead. As we dressed in the locker room, I moaned to Luke about all the running O'Leary was having us do. You'd think we were on the track team. It's a good sign for us, Luke said softly. What do you mean? I asked, my voice dropping to a whisper. Simple. Last year's team always walked the ball up the court and ran a set offense. They weren't a running team, right? Yeah, that's true, but so what? Don't you get it? O'Leary's changing his style. Fabroa can't run like you can. Matt Markey can't keep up with me. If we play up-tempo ball, those guys are on the bench and we're on the court. My pulse quickened. You really think so? I know so. If we show O'Leary we can handle the pressure, we'll be, we'll be first string by the end of the week. I'd figured... I'd been figuring to play six or eight minutes a game, but Luke was talking about more. And why not? In my heart, I knew I was better than Fabroa, that Luke was better than Marky. So what if they were seniors? Those guys had had their chance last year, and they'd they done nothing with it. Ten wins, twelve losses. It was our turn. You ready? Luke said. I laced up my second shoe. Yeah, let's go. As we left the locker room, I looked over to the coach's office. But instead of seeing Trent with his head over some book, I saw a policeman sitting at O'Leary's desk, his nightstick jutting out from his hip. Trent was talking, and as he, as he talked, he was shaking his head back and forth vigorously. Both Luke and I stopped and stared. Coach O'Leary caught us staring, which immediately made us hustle out the door. I wonder what that was all about, Luke murmured once we were outside. When I reached home, there was more. You missed all the excitement, Scott said as soon as I stepped inside. What are you talking about? Zach Dawson. Two police cars came roaring up our block about an hour ago. It was quite a scene. One cop went around the back. The other knocked on the front door. They were inside for about ten minutes. Then they led Zach away in handcuffs. Mrs. Dawson was screaming at them from the front porch, calling them every name in the book. I'm telling you, it was something. As he spoke, I felt myself going pale. What did he do? Scott shrugged. How should I know? Stole something, probably, or drugs. There are about a million things he could have done. He stopped and looked at me. What's wrong with you? Nothing's wrong with me, I snapped, suddenly angry. But there's something wrong with you. You act happy to see Zach get arrested. His back stiffened. Since when have you been big buddies with Zach Dawson? It seems like, to me, a couple months ago, he almost killed you. I'm not big buddies with Zach Dawson or with Trent, but it doesn't make me happy to see them get in trouble, and I don't see why it should make you happy either. I pushed past him and went to the kitchen, pulling the door closed behind me. I grabbed some Oreos and milk from the refrigerator and then sat down and ate. In eighth grade, our class had gone on a field trip to the juvenile detention center. Before we'd gone, I'd figured the place would be a dump with busted toilets and graffiti on the walls. 
like something from an old movie, but it was the opposite. Spotlessly clean and modern, with a nice basketball court, a computer lab, a big library. That was the first shock. The second was that the kids locked up in there didn't look that different from me. They were a little older, but not much. They wore orange jumpsuits and laughed loudly with one another as they moved from one room to the next. You could have told yourself they were having fun if it weren't for the double set of doors that locked them in and the guards that stood at those doors. Before we left, the guys, the guides showed us the rooms the kids slept in. They were tiny little rooms, bare and cold. It spooked me to think that Zach was in one of those rooms. I had to do something, so I went out to the basketball court. It felt good to pick up the basketball, to eye the hoop. I knocked down a three-pointer, retrieved the ball, and knocked down another one. That was more like it. I worked the ball between my legs, behind my back, controlling it as though it was a yo-yo on a string. I blocked out everything except the season coming up, the game on Thursday, and the minutes I was going to play. After dinner, I sat at my desk. Instead of doing my homework, I put my pencil down and listened to the sounds of the night. A car on 104th, a fire truck somewhere far, far off, another car, some dog barking, in, barking his fool head off. Something felt wrong. Then it hit me. It wasn't any new sound that had thrown me off. It was a missing sound. Trent wasn't practicing with Steve Clay. The Dawson house was shut up tight the next morning, and Trent wasn't at school either. Rumors floated around. Someone said Zach and Trent had been shooting a gun down by the trail. Somebody else said that they'd stolen a bunch of guitars from Mills Music. There was talk of broken windows at the school district offices and swastikas painted on the outside of a synagogue in Redmond. At practice, Coach O'Leary stayed in his office while we ran through warm-ups. We could see him in there talking on the phone. When he finally came out, he called us together. What do you bet Trent Dawson's no longer on this team? Carver whispered as we shuffled over to O'Leary. You got that right, McShane agreed softly. O'Leary's normally cheerful face seemed topsy-turvy. The corners of his mouth were down and his eyes drooped. He waited for absolute silence before he began. I won't beat around the bush. You know the police were here talking to Trent after practice yesterday. The long and the short of it is that they took him into custody. I spoke with Trent last night and again today, and he has given me his word that he has done nothing wrong. I accept his word, and I fully expect that when the investigation is over, he will be cleared and that he will return to this team. He paused. Any questions? Every one of us wanted to know what was being investigated, but nobody had the courage to ask. All right, then, O'Leary said. Let's get to work. It was our last practice before the season started, and it was our worst. Guys were chirping at each other, acting more like opponents than teammates. Every time the gym door opened, O'Leary stared toward it. When the two hours ended, it was like being released from the dentist chair. Not exactly the way to start a season. <laughs> Ooh, that's the end of part two. Part three, chapter one. Oh my gosh, this is such a short chapter. I just can't. Once I get rolling on a book like this, just like getting off a roller coaster midway, you know? It's just like, it's like going to a grocery store and then not buying anything and just go turn around and going home. You can't just read just two chapters. You got to read one more. Here we go. Chapter one of part three. The next night, we opened the season against the Winita Rebels at their gym. 
They had decent players at every position, and they had an all-star at guard, a six foot four guy named Matthew Jefferson. When I played, I'd be guarding him. There was no practice on game days, so as soon as school ended, I walked straight home. Once I reached my block, I sneaked a peek at, over at the Dawson house. The shades were down, the curtains were drawn. It looked like a house with a sick person in it. When I opened the door, Scott was sprawled out on the sofa, blowing into the mouthpiece of his trumpet. Are they back? He asked in a monotone. What? Zach and Trent. I saw you staring at their house. Are they back? Are you spying on me now? He gave me a pained look. I'm sitting here on the sofa looking out the window and I see you staring at the Dawson house for about five minutes. I wouldn't call that spying, would you? Now, are they back? No, they're not. I started toward the kitchen. I heard what happened, he said, still using that irritating monotone. I got it all from Katya. You un you interested? I turned back. You know I am. Excuse me. He stretched his arms above his head, yawned. A couple of mornings ago, a cyclist found some dead chickens and roosters down on the Burke Gilman Trail. They'd been clubbed with a baseball bat or something. It happened right where Zach and Trent hang out. The police asked around, and it turns out Michael Yushikov saw them do it. Michael did? Are you sure? Scott lowered his voice as if something might, someone might overhear. Don't say anything to Katya, but this is where it gets tricky. You know Michael. Sometimes he says it was Zach. Sometimes he says it was Trent. Sometimes he says it was both of them. I bit my lower lip. What do you think will happen? Who knows? Nothing, probably, unless they admit it. I can't see Michael testifying in court, can you? I shook my head. No, I can't. Then for a second time, I headed towards the kitchen. Dad called, Scott said. Again, I turned back. What did he say? Scott shrugged. Just said he'll be at the game. Nothing else? I didn't pick up. The, me the message is on the machine if you want to listen to it. What do you mean you didn't pick up? His face went red. It's you he wanted to talk to, Nick, not me. I don't think it's even occurred to him that the band will be playing tonight. We looked at each other for a long moment. Then he stuck the mouthpiece back in his trumpet and started flipping through his music book. A second later, he was blowing on the horn, loud and clear. Oh, man. I want to keep reading it, but I know that it's it's time. It's time to set the it's time to set night hoops down. Maybe maybe for the rest of the episode. I don't want to say that, but I don't know. We don't have anything else planned, so let's just plow through. <laughs> I'm like telling you, telling you what the blueprint is. I'm letting you in on the behind the scenes of how we do this on Stars Born. See, nothing else really planned. On the uh, old yellow legal plaid, the old, um, some may call it a buck slip, others call it a legal pad. I don't know the difference. I got a little piece of my pizza left over here. Oh man, I got a giant, it must have been like three and a half pounds of pizza from Walmart. Um, one of those supreme, like ultra meat trio. Last me, I probably got that. Tuesday, I believe, and now it's Thursday afternoon, so I a few pieces Tuesday, a few yesterday, and a few today. There you go. I'm a huge pizza. I'm a pizza fiend, baby. It, it meets my needs. My cheese, my cheesy needs. Ooh, pizza with Gouda cheese sounds really good. I would try that. 
You probably find that somewhere, some sort of hipster foodie place. Um, oh, let's read a few. I have a few um, quotes here from my Gryffindor, Harry Potter. It's kind of like my journal, I would say. Let's see. While you're holding a grudge, the other person is out there dancing. That's a quote from Buddy Hackett. I think he's like an old comedian. Um, this is one I can't remember. This is anonymous because I can't remember where I heard this. You are the mountain. The weather might change, but you are always the mountain. That's a good one. That's like saying how no matter what environment you're in, no matter where you are, oh, you can always know who you are. You're always the same person, no matter what environment you're in. So, I like that. Um, anxiety, anxiety robs you of joy. That's an interesting one. Um, let's see. Don't chase what other people want. Chase what you want. Who is writing the narrative? Oh, I like that one. Oh, this is a really interesting one. I heard I must have heard this on some podcast or something. Moby Dick was poorly reviewed. I like that. That's like so, that's such inspiration for for me to write more books and keep publishing books because let's see, we just talked about Moby Dick not that long ago. That was in the Chris episode because Chris Hemsworth was in that um that movie, the Ron Howard movie based on Moby Dick. But, um, let's see, Moby Dick. I just want to see what year. Oh, it was published 1851. See, that's what I'm talking about. Published a book over 150 years ago. And then, it probably, it probably, I want to see how long it took it to get famous. Because it could take it 100 years to get famous. I mean, let's see. Um, let's Reception. There we go. Uh, first British literary criticism was more sophisticated and developed than in the still young republic. With British reviewing done by cadres of brilliant literary people who were experienced critics and trenchant prose stylists. While United States had only a handful of reviewers capable enough to be called critics. Um... Okay. Second, the differences between the two editions cause two distinct critical receptions. Oh, so there's two. Oh, the reception of the whale in Britain and of Moby Dick in the United States. Wait, so he he released a different ed- edition of the book in Great Britain as he did in the United States? Huh. Moby Dick was published to mixed reviews, was a commercial failure, and was out of print at the time of the author's death in 1891. So when he died, he thought he was pretty much a failure. <laughs> That's crazy. And then, if only he could know. If only he could, he could know what Moby Dick became. How everyone knows the name Moby Dick now. It's crazy. Its reputation as a great American novel was established in the 20th century after the centennial of his author's birth. William Faulkner confessed he wished he had written the book himself. 
while D.H. Lawrence called it one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world and the greatest book of the sea ever written. Its opening sentence, Call Me Ishmael, is among world's world literature's most famous. Like I talked about how much, uh, how you should, if you're trying to become a successful writer, any aspiring writers out there, just look up first sentences of famous books and uh, rewrite them. Just literally write them down on a piece of paper. Because apparently, I've learned somewhere, I can't remember where, that it's good practice. That that'll help you write a, I don't know, somehow like subliminally or subconsciously, if you write the first sentence of a famous successful book, then that will help you write a famous successful book in, in turn um, somehow. But I like I like the theory. I like it. Um, that's Melville began writing Moby Dick in February 1850 and would eventually take 18 months to write the book, a full year more than he had anticipated. Writing was interrupted by his making the acquaintance of Nathaniel Hawthorne in August 1850 and by the creation of Moses from an old man's essay as a result of that friendship. The book is dedicated to Hawthorne in token of my admiration for his genius. Who's Nathaniel Hawthorne? Oh, he's another writer. Okay. Dark romantic novelist and short stories. He's from Salem, Massachusetts. When did... Oh my gosh. Now we gotta look up the witch trials. <laughs> now we gotta look up the witch trials. Oh my gosh. Alright, let's do it. I also found something interesting, completely blew my mind. This blew my mind when I learned this yesterday, that I had no idea. I had no clue that Ernest Hemingway was like, basically like a modern, like a modern day person. He lived from, um, well, he was born in the 1800s, I suppose, born in... 1899, July 21st, 1899, and died July 2nd, 1961. So he died a year before my parents were born. So that's how, like, modern he was. I thought, just whenever I heard the name Ernest Hemingway, I thought he was more like a Mark Twain. Like, what's, isn't Mark Twain, like, more like uh, mid-1800s? I'm checking right now. Yeah, 1835 to 1910. So he still lived to, into the 1900s as well. Okay. That's why I thought I thought uh, Ernest Hemingway was more of that era. So I was shocked when I found out that he lived till 1961. And uh, he died in uh, Ketchum, Idaho. So not too far from where I'm sitting right now. From... Uh, the Ernest Hemingway house in Ketchum. Let's see. His house is still there, I believe. It's going to be on Ketchum. will definitely be on Ketchum's points of interest for sure. Or not. Notable former residents. Yeah. Their house is there. So you can find it. Let's see. <laughs> I'm all over the place. I apologize. Um, let's, I'm reading about Ernest Hemingway. His economical and understated style 
which he termed the iceberg theory. What's the iceberg theory? It's a technique of writing turned colloquialism coined by Ernest Hemingway. Uh, as a young journalist, Hemingway had to focus on focus his newspaper reports on immediate events with very little context or interpretation. When he became a writer of short stories, he retained his minimalistic style, focusing on surface elements without explicitly discussing underlying themes. Hemingway believed the deeper meaning of a story should not be evident on the surface, but should shine through implicitly. Ooh, I like that. I I think that sounds like that sounds like my kind of that sounds like how I want to write. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to read some Ernest Hemingway. I've never even never read him, but the iceberg theory very cool. Um, his iceberg theory had a strong influence on 20th century fiction. While his adventurous lifestyle and public image brought him admiration from later generations. Excuse me. Um, excuse me. Heming- Hemingway produced most of his work between the mid-1920s and mid-1950s and won the Nobel, Priest, Nobel Prize in Literature in 1954. He published seven novels, six short story collections, and two nonfiction works. Three of his novels, four short story collections, and three nonfiction works were published posthumously. Many of his works are considered classics of American literature. Hemingway was raised in Oak Park, Illinois. After high school, he reported for a few months for the Kansas City Star before leaving for the Italian front to enlist as an ambulance driver in World War I. In 1918, he was seriously wounded and returned home. His wartime experiences formed the basis for his novel, A Farewell to Arms, 1929. In 1921, he married Hadley Richardson, the first of what would be four wives. The couple moved to Paris, where he worked as a foreign correspondent and fell under the influence of the modernist writers and artists of the 1920s Lost Generation expatriate community. The Lost Generation, what is that? Um, Lost Generation was a generation that came of age during World War One. Lost in this respect means disoriented, wandering, directionless. Oh, I was thinking lost like lost time. That's what I was thinking. Uh, a, a recognition that there was great confusion and aimlessness among the war survivors in the early post-war years. So that's what the Lost Generation means. Okay. Um, his debut novel, The Sun Also Rises, was published in 1926. After his 1927 divorce from Richardson, Hemingway married Pauline Pfeiffer. They divorced after he returned from the Spanish Civil War, where he had been a journalist. He based For Whom the Bell Tolls on his experience there. Martha Gellhorn became his third wife in 1940. They separated after he met Mary Walt. Mary Welsh in London during World War II. He was present at the Normandy landings and the liberation of Paris. Man, this guy's like a straight up player. He's <laughs> he's bouncing around. He's a free agent. He's playing the field. Um, I think he was also known for being an alcoholic too. Shortly after the publication of The Old Man in the Sea, 1952, Hemingway went on the safari to Africa 
where he was almost killed in two successive plane crashes that left him in pain or ill health for much of his rest of his life. Two two plane crashes in a row? Dang. That's like that's almost like being struck by lightning twice in a row. Um Hemingway maintained permanent residences in Key West, Florida in the nineteen thirties. Oh my my parents love going to Key West. <laughs> that's like one of my parents' favorite vacation destinations, Key West. It's the home of a uh, that's Parrot Head Central. That's a Parrot Head HQ, home of Margaritaville. Um, and Hemingway also lived in Cuba in the 1940s and 50s. In 1959, he bought a house in Ketchum, Idaho, where in mid-1961, he ended his own life. Um, let's see. Anything else? Like, um, like, a, like, a, I want to see what was house... Man, there's so much information. There's so much information on Wikipedia about Ernest Hemingway. Holy cow. Uh, The New York Times wrote in 1926 of Hemingway's first novel, No amount of analysis can convey the quality of the sun also rises. So it was kind of the opposite of a Moby Dick situation. Um, he, He... it is a truly gripping story told in a lean, hard, athletic, narrative prose that puts... I've never heard of... I've never heard of writing as described as lean and athletic. What? <laughs> what a weird way to describe writing. It's, these, this paragraph is athletic. <laughs> this, that sentence could have dunked from the free throw line. Um, that's so interesting. Um, that puts more in a lean, hard, athletic narrative prose that puts more literary English to shame. The Sun Also Rises is written in the spare type prose that made Hemingway famous and, according to James Nagel, changed the nature of American writing. In 1954, when Hemingway was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize or Nobel Prize for Literature, it was for his mastery of the art of the narrative most recently demonstrated in The Old Man and the Sea, and for the influence that he has exerted on contemporary style. That was a definitely one that was um, parodied by The Simpsons. The Old Man and the Sea. It was an episode with Grandpa and Bart, I believe. Um, yeah, because Bart would be the sea. Um... Hemingway habitually used the word and in place of commas. Oh, I see. I see. So he kind of just like, he likes doing like the run on sentence thing, kind of. Kind of like the Shea Serrano, Bill Simmons style of writing. Oh, lots of ands. I like using the ands too. This use of polysendentin. What's polysendentin? Means... Uh, bounding together with, okay, may serve to convey immediacy, okay, huh, uh, family tree, he has a family tree, list of works, influences, legacy, writers who came after him emulated or avoided his style, so his style is his legacy, Benson believes the details of Hemingway's life have been 
become a prime vehicle for exploitation, resulting in a Hemingway industry. It's a whole industry. Hemingway scholar, uh, the hard-boiled style. I like that description, hard-boiled style. And the machismo must be separated from the author himself. Benson agrees, describing himself, describing uh, Hemingway as introverted and private as J.D. Salinger. Although Hemingway masked his nature with braggadocio, during World War II, Salinger met and corresponded with Hemingway, whom he acknowledged as an influence. In a letter to Hemingway, Salinger claimed their talks had given him his only hopeful minutes over the entire war and jokingly named himself national chairman of the Hemingway fan club. That's so funny. That makes me like J.D. Salinger. The catcher in the rye guy. Wow, he just passed away in 2010. Lived to be 91. Holy Toledo. Um, let's, I wonder what, he, what else did he write? Other, oh, he wrote a ton of other books other than Catcher in the Rye. I also want, I was interested, so that's a little, I want to see Ernest Hemingway alcohol. I want to see if he was a big seven things you didn't know. This is Food Republic. Let's see what Food Republic has to say. Hemingway was notoriously fond of drinking, but he refrained from indulging while writing, they say. When asked in an interview if rumors of him taking a picture of martinis to work every morning were true, he answered, Jesus Christ, have you ever heard of anyone who drank while he worked? You're thinking of Faulkner. He does sometimes, and I can tell you right in the middle of a page when he's had his first one. Besides, who in hell would mix more than one martini at a time? The mojito was not Hemingway's favorite drink. Hemingway lived in Havana, Habana. It may have drank mojitos, but their connection to the writer can probably be traced to their marketing efforts of La Bodeguita del Medeo. Um, a handwritten inscription allegedly penned by Hemingway on the wall of the now famous bar professing his love for the cocktail is likely a forgery, says Green. <laughs> That's just like Guy Fieri, how, he's, how his image is always in. All those restaurants everywhere. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. What if every bar had a handwritten note from Ernest Hemingway on the wall? Right next to the picture of Guy Fieri. <laughs> I love it. Uh, they consulted a handwriting expert. As a diabetic, Papa took most of his drinks, including absinthe and double daiquiris, without sugar. So the sweet mojito surely would not have been his cup of tea. Uh, Hemingway had several go-to cocktails, but his favorite was a dry martini. Uh, the author thought globally, but drank locally. I like that. That's funny. Hemingway may have liked his martinis dry as dry as a bone, but he loved vermouth. Vermouth. Um, Hemingway liked his drinks icy cold, just like this icy blue sky right now in Pullman. Beautiful. Uh, Hemingway did not invent the Bloody Mary. There are many stories about the origins of the Bloody Mary. One such legend has it that the drink was first served to Hemingway in Paris. As the story goes, his doctors had forbidden him <coughs> excuse me, from having alcohol, and his wife, Mary, was holding him to it. 
A bartender at the Ritz mixed him the vodka and tomato juice drink full of booze that could not have detect could not be detected thanks to the other strong ingredients. Um, having got the better of his bloody wife, the cocktail was christened after her. A number of sources have debunked this myth, including Mythbusters. No, it doesn't say that last part, but that would be fun though if they did that. Um, let's see. Hemingway traveled extensively, but it was was most at home on a bar stool. From his experiences in World War One and Lost Generation Paris, to safaris in Africa and fishing the Gulf Stream, from covering the Spanish Civil War and World War Two to chasing German U-boats off the Cuban coast, Hemingway's life was one full adventure. Green reminds us, "Don't bother with churches, government buildings, or city squares," Papa once said. If you want to know about a culture, spend a night in its bars. Hemingway. Here's some. Hemingway quotes about drinking from BBC. Oh, oh, let's see what they got here. Let's see. Wine is a grand thing. It makes you forget all the bad. Wait. Yeah, okay, yeah. That was some that was from Ernest Hemingway. Wine is a grand thing. It makes you forget all the bad. On drinking habits from a movable feast. Oh, these are from his books. I see. On drinking habits. Drinking wine was not a snobism, nor a sign of sophistication, nor a cult. It was a natural, as natural as eating, and to me, as necessary. On starting young. I have drunk since I was 15, and few things have given me more pleasure. <laughs> On quantity, from the sun also rises. This is a good place, he said. There's a lot of liquor. I agreed. <laughs> On boredom, um, I drink to make other people more interesting. Oh, I've heard that one. That one's been on. It's been carved into one a block of wood, and sold at a urban outfitters before. Uh, on modern life, what well, if there's one on modern family? That'd be cool. He's like Phil is the funniest. Um, on modern life, modern life too is often a mechanical oppression, and liquor is the only mechanical relief. On pleasure from death in the afternoon. Wine is one of the most civilized things in the world. On hostilities. Don't bother with churches. Oh yeah, we just read that one. On martinis from a farewell to arms. I had never tasted anything so cool and clean. They made me feel civilized. <laughs> there we go. There's a little Ernest Hemingway deep dive for y'all. Oh, we gotta talk a little Salem Wish Trials. This is a fascinating story. Fascinating. The Salem Witch Trials, a series of hearings and prosecutions of people accused of witchcraft in colonial Massachusetts between February 1692 and May 1693. I can't believe that Hollywood hasn't made a huge... I mean, I'm sure there has been a few movies about it, but... Excuse me. I can't think of a huge successful one. That's been made about the Salem Witch Trials. Come on. Come on, guys. Come on, execs. More than 200 people were accused, 19 of whom were found guilty and executed by hanging. 14 women of five men? I didn't know that there were... Wow, I did not know that there were men that were killed in the Salem Witch Trials for some reason. 
Huh. Um, I did hear about this guy, though. I think this was on Drunk History that I learned this. About Giles Corey. Yeah, this was definitely Drunk History. The person who was crushed to death for refusing the plea. Oh, my gosh. Let's look at... Let's look at Giles Corey. Um, he was. I want to see how they di- how they do it. Death by pressing doesn't sound that bad, but it's, I think it's pretty horrific. According to the law at the time, a person who refused to plead could not be tried. To avoid persons cheating justice, the legal remedy for refusing to plead was pene forte et dur. Uh, in this process, the prisoner was stripped naked and a heavy board was laid on his body. Then rocks or boulders were laid on the plank of wood. This was a process of being pressed. Remanded to the prison from whence he came, put into a low dark chamber, and there be laid on his back on the bare floor, naked, unless when decency forbids that there be placed upon his body as great a weight as he could bear, and more, that he hath no sustenance, save only on the first day. Three morsels of the worst bread, the worst bread, uh, and the second day, three droughts of standing water that should be alternately his daily diet till he, till he died or till he answered. As a result of his refusal to plea, um, he was subject to the procedure by Sheriff George Corwin, but he was steadfast in that refusal um, nor did he cry out in pain as the rocks were placed on the boards. After two days, Corey was asked three more times to enter a plea, but each time he replied, more weight, and the sheriff complied. Occasionally, Corwin would even stand on the stones himself. Robert Califf, oh, that's just insult to injury right there. He's just taunting. It's like 15-yard penalty, taunting. Robert Califf, who was a witness along with other townsfolk, Lair said, In the pressing, Giles Corey's tongue was pressed out of his mouth. The sheriff, with his cane, forced it in again. There are several accounts of Corey's last words. The most commonly told one is that he repeated his request for more weight, as this was how it was dramatized in the crucible. But it may also have been more rocks. Another telling notes... It as, damn you, I curse you, and Salem. Samuel Sewell's diary states, um, About noon at Salem, Giles Corey was pressed to death for standing mute. Much pains was used with him two days. One after another, by the court and Captain Gardner of Nantucket, who had been of his acquaintance, but all in vain. Um, it is unusual for people to refuse to plead, and extremely rare to find reports of persons who have been able to endure this painful form of death in silence. Since Corey refused to plead, he died in full, possess- full possession of his estate, which would otherwise have been forfeited to the government. It passed on to his two sons-in-law, according to his will. The pressing of Giles Corey is unique in New England. It is similar to the case in England of Margaret Clitheroe, who was arrested on March 10, 1586, for the crime of harboring priests, hearing mass, and secretly being of the Catholic faith. Huh. Oh, aftermath? Corey's wife, was Martha, was hanged three days later. She had a son from a previous marriage named Thomas. He showed up as a petitioner for loss and damages resulting from 
his mother being executed illegally during the wish trials, he was awarded 50 pounds. The gruesome and public nature of Corey's death may have caused residents of Salem to rethink their support of the wish trials. Huh, so it might have been like a tipping point, like a lightning rod for change. Huh. Let's see. Uh, at least five people jailed. It was the deadliest witch hunt in the history of the U.S. Now I'm just back on the Salem witch hunt again. Twelve other women had previously been executed in Massachusetts and Connecticut during the 17th century. Despite being generally known as the Salem Witch Trials, the preliminary hearings in 1692 were, were conducted in several towns. Salem Village, which is now Danvers, Salem Town, Ipswich, and Andover. The most infamous trials were conducted by the Court of Oyer and Terminer in 1692 Salem Town. So, this is an episode of Mass Hysteria, one of the no- most notorious in American history. Um, according to the historian George Lincoln Burr, the Salem witchcraft was the rock on which the theocracy shattered. Wow. Theocracy is a form of government in which religious institution is a source from which all authority derives. Okay. Yeah, change. Salem wish trials. That's like early, early history. For America, early American history. At the 300th anniversary events in 1992, uh, to commemorate the victims of trials, a park was dedicated in Salem and a memorial in Danvers. In November 2001, an act passed by a Massachusetts legislator exonerated five people while another... One passed in 1957 had previously exonerated six other victims. As of 2004, there was still talk about exonerating all the victims, though some think that happened that happened in the 19th century as the Massachusetts colonial legislator was asked to reverse the attainders of George Burroughs and others. Don't know what attainders, what, okay, uh, January 2016, the University of Virginia announced its Gallows Hill Project team that had determined the execution site of Sa- in Salem, um, where the 19 witches had been hanged. The city owns the site and is planning to establish a memorial to the victims. The Gallows Hill Project. Send them to the gallows. Um. Wow. So, that's like... <clears throat> Excuse me, that's why I want to go to, I'd like to go to Boston in Massachusetts. Just so much history there. I mean, go to Fenway Park. Dang. Speaking of Virginia, though, I just wanted to double check to see that they they did. They won today, their basketball team. They're ranked like, where are they ranked number one in the country? They were losing at halftime to NC State. So that's why I was, I saw that at the gym today when I was, after I played some basketball with Lorraine Newsom and her mooses, played some basketball hoops. Um, but yeah, noticed that uh, Virginia, LeBron James's favorite college basketball team, the Virginia Cavaliers, they won today. So there you go. All right. Wow. We're doing it. We're doing it big. Let's just go crazy right now. And read a little bit more 
yet a little bit more of night hoops. I can't get enough of it, so we're going to go back to the night hoops well one more time this episode. Okay? Okay. Chapter 2. Mom came home early and stuck some sort of pizza in the microwave for dinner. It wasn't a lot, which was perfect, because I was so nervous I couldn't have eaten much without puking. Getting out to the car was a major production. First, I forgot my basketball shoes. Then Scott had to go back inside for some sheet music. When Mom finally backed the car into the driveway, she realized she'd left her purse on the kitchen table. So I was back into the house one more time. When I reached the locker room, my body felt incredibly cold. It was a raw December day, maybe 40 degrees out, with rain and wind, but the cold was from inside me. I wasn't alone. Nobody looked good. Not Luke, not Fabroa, or Chang, or Marky, or McShane, not even Carver. Ten minutes before we were to take the court, Coach O'Leary called us together. He was all business. The Jefferson kid is a guy we have to contain. Notice I didn't say stop. I said contain. He's too good to be stopped. I'm not worried about his points, so as so long as he has to work for them. It's his defense that scares me. He's got long arms and good court sense. If they press us, don't loop passes over him. He'll pick them off and be dunking in your face. Guards, come back for the ball. Dribble up the center of the court and don't stop dribbling unless you've got someone to pass to. Forwards, stay out of the corners. Either drive straight to the basket or give up the ball to a guard so we can run a set play. Got it? The senior stars all said, yeah, real loud, while the rest of us croaked out a weaker version of the same word. All right, let's go get him, O'Leary cried, clapping his hands. During our lay-in and passing drills, I sneaked a peek into the stands. Right away, I caught Dad's eye. He was beaming ear to ear and gave me two thumbs up. I looked for Mom then, but she wasn't there. For an instant, I figured she must be buying food or drink or something. And then I remembered, they wouldn't be sitting together. Not this game, not any game. She'd be on the other side of the gym, near the band and Scott. I wanted to wheel around and look for her, but I couldn't, not with O'Leary barking out last-minute instructions. The horn sounded. The starters shuffled onto the court, acting as if they were in no hurry at all. I took a seat on the bench next to Luke, about halfway down. You're not supposed to root against a guy on your own team, but it's hard to be riding the pines and not have some negative thoughts creep in. Carlos Fabroa had the job I wanted. If he did well, I was going to sit. But if he struggled, I just might get a chance. Fabroa did okay for the first few minutes, keeping his dribble alive until he could make the smart pass. But breaking breaking a press a couple of times isn't the same as breaking it over and over. Juanita led by two near the end of the first quarter when he made his first terrible pass, a rainbow lob that their center picked off. Immediately, they were off to the races, with Jefferson taking a pass in stride and throwing down a thunderous one-handed jam that electrified the crowd and totally rattled Fabroa. Fabroa took the inbounds pass. The double team came at him. He tried to split the defenders, but dribbled the ball off his knee. Two seconds later, Jefferson nailed a three-point shot from the corner. In less than five seconds, Juanita's two-point lead had grown to seven. Nick, Luke... Coach O'Leary yelled down the bench. We both popped up. Get in there for Fabro and Marky and make something happen. My skin went completely dry as I knelt at the scorer's table waiting for the next dead ball. When I actually took the court, my knees felt like metal hinges holding together two rigid boards. The ref handed the ball to Luke. 
He inbounded to me, and I was playing my first varsity game. There was no chance to ease into the game, not with Jefferson guarding me. I drove hard to the right, lost him a little when I went back behind my back with the dribble, and then cut straight toward the hoop. Carver's man rotated to me, and I made a bounce pass to Darren for the lay-in. Then I was backpelling, looking to pick up, pick up Jefferson totally in the flow. The rest of that half was like a track meet. Up and down the court we went, we needed to try and disrupt our rhythm with our press while we tried to make them pay for it with aggressive drives to the hoop. When the halftime buzzer sounded, we were up 36-32, to 32, and I still hadn't come out. O'Leary kept both Luke and me out there to start the second half. I wanted to show him he was right to do it, but Jefferson was bigger than I was and stronger. Toward the middle of the third quarter, Winita started posting me up. Jefferson would take the entry pass, everybody would clear out, and then he'd methodically back me down toward the hoop. When he had me where he wanted me, he'd give me a little pump fake or two, and then either spin me, spin by me or shoot over me. They scored on three out of four possessions using that same play, and twice I fouled him. It was the fouls that stuck me on the bench at the start of the fourth quarter. That and the fact that I was so tired I was late, late getting back on defense. Luke came out with me, and we sat side by side, sweat dripping off us, watching. The game was knotted at 57 when we left the floor. Nothing terrible happened, no 10-0 run or anything, but little by little, Winita pulled away. A three-point lead became five, then seven. With four minutes left, their coach took Jefferson out, figuring the game was wrapped up. Still, Luke and I sat. They led with 68-58 with under three minutes left when Luke and I finally returned. Two things made me think we could still win. I, I felt fresh, and Luke had that look in his eyes. Besides, the Winita guys thought they had the game. They'd stopped pressing, and they weren't being careful with the ball. Jefferson was leaning back on the bench, smiling, taking congratulations from fans in the front row, waiting for the clock to run out. They didn't know about Luke's hot streaks. He caught fire right when we needed it, and I fed him the ball just the way you'd feed a campfire. He filled the basket. A three-pointer from the corner, a driving, spinning lay-in, a miss from the top of the key, but then two more three-pointers, both from well outside the arc. By the time the Winita coach finally got a timeout, we were up 75-74, and it was our fans in our band that was raising the roof. Jefferson came back in, along with the other first stringers, rested but also out of sync. They hadn't expected to return in their minds, they were at the pizza parlor telling their girlfriends all about the shots they'd made. The moment, the momentum, momentum was ours, but we just couldn't put them away. Our lead was three, then five, then three, then one, 83-82. That was the score when, with less than a minute left, Cheng was open for a three-pointer from the corner. I hit him with a perfect pass, and he went up in rhythm. In the air, the shot looked good. I was certain it was going to be the dagger in the heart but the ball hit the back rim and bounded high into the air. Juanita's center snatched a rebound, called the timeout, and it was anybody's game. We huddled around O'Leary. I could see him eyeing me, see the worry in his eyes. He looked toward Fabroa. Was he going to take me out? He couldn't. I had to finish the game. I had to. He coughed, then motioned for me to come closer. I was staying in. Listen up, O'Leary said. Somehow or another, they'll get the ball to Jefferson. Nick, you get out on him. You hear me? Make sure he puts the ball on the floor and drives to the hoop. No open jumpers. Understand? Now for the rest of you. 
As soon as Jefferson puts the ball on the floor, I want whoever's closest to rotate off his man and double team. If you're not sure it's you, go after him. Even a triple team is okay by me. If Jefferson makes a good pass and some other guy makes a shot, then I'll tip my cap to them and say good game. But I don't want Jefferson beating us. Make him pass the ball. The horn sounded. We headed back to the court. And box out, O'Leary yelled after us. No second chances. Just as O'Leary had predicted, Juanita worked the screen to get the ball to Jefferson on the right side, about 18 feet from the hoop. Once Jefferson had the ball, they cleared out the side, setting it up for him to work me one-on-one. Jefferson dropped both shoulders low and swung the ball in front of me. My eyes were locked on the ball as he moved it side to side, but my mind was going too. He was good, but not so good that he tried to make a long jumper at that moment. I backed off a little, just six inches, to give myself an edge when he finally did put the ball on the floor, in case I didn't get the double-team help. I didn't want him dunking in my face. Then it happened, quicker than quick. The instant Jefferson saw me back off, he rose for his jumper. Awkwardly, I lunged toward him, but it was too late to get a hand in his face, too late to bother a shot at all. I'll never forget his eyes. They were incredibly intense, totally focused on the hoop. His release was perfect. The spin on the ball was perfect. The arc was perfect. Swish, nothing but net. He drained that shot as though he was playing horse with his buddies in mid-July. I looked to our bench. O'Leary had his hands in the air, his eyes were closed, and his face was contorted with pain. No, 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 he shouted. Winita had the lead back with 17 seconds left. We had no timeouts. Luke inbounded the ball to me. A feeling of panic, of desperation, overcame me. I had blown it. I brought the ball across the center line, my heart racing. Jefferson came out on me, picked me up. Carver clapped his hands, calling for the ball, but I wasn't giving it up. Be the man, that's what my dad had said. Jefferson had burned me. Now I was going to scorch him. I turned my back to the basket and started backing Jefferson down, bumping against him, working closer and closer to the hoop. Luke flashed into the key, looking for a pass, but I let him go. This was me against Jefferson. I could hear the crowd counting down the seconds. Eight, seven, six, five. I gave Jefferson my best head fake. He didn't bite. I gave him another one and another. Still, he held his ground. Three, two. In desperation, I turned baseline, hoping to get it off a fadeaway jumper. But he was all over me. I couldn't jump, couldn't even see the basket. All I saw was his hand. Still, I released the ball. It went about an inch. Then Jefferson stuffed the ball right back in my face, stuffed me so hard I fell flat under my back, the ball landing on my belly as I fell. The horn sounded. Winita fans rose in a great roar of happiness. The Winita players hugged Jefferson and then high-fived each other. I closed my eyes and lay there, hoping that when I opened them, it would turn out to have been a bad dream. In the locker room after the game, none of the other guys said a word, but I knew what they were thinking, that I had blown it, that I had made a sophomore's play, an idiot's play, and it cost us the game, the league opener. I relieved, I relived the last minute over and over, all the mistakes, backing off Jefferson, not passing to Carver, not passing to Luke, trying to do it all by myself. Who did I think I was? The locker room emptied. Still, I sat, unable to rouse myself. O'Leary left, not even saying goodbye. I remembered the final huddle, the way he looked at me and then looked at Fabroa. He'd given me my chance. 
right away in the opening game, he put the team in my hands, and I choked. I choked big time. Dad drove me home. What were you thinking, he said, slapping the steering wheel as he spoke. Trying to back a guy like that down and shoot over him? No way, Nick. You've got to drive on someone like that. Use your quickness against them. Drive to the hoop or stop and take the pull-up jumper, but not back him down. Use your head or the coach is going to sit your butt down. He pulled up in front of the house. I got out and he leaned across and rolled down the window. You get only so many chances, Nick. You've got to play smart. There, we will leave it there with night hoops. Boom. Nick struggles in his first game. First varsity game. I mean, at least he got some playing time, though. At least he was in there at the end. As a sophomore, playing over the seniors? It sounds, it sounds like an intense game for first one of the season. Man, I love that book. Bothell High School. Bothell Cougars, baby. All right. <laughs> Enough putting putting this off. Let's uh let's uh wrap up. Let's wrap it up, baby. We got to do it. We got to do it. Scarjo, where were we? We just talked about I think we talked about Ghost in the Shell, didn't we? 2017. She plays Major Ghost in the Shell. In the near future, Major Mila Killian is the first of her kind, a human saved saved from a terrible crash who is cyber-enhanced to be a perfect soldier devoted to stopping the world's most dangerous criminals. I don't, I don't think I already read that. That's uh, one of the international ones. I think that's a Japanese movie? Let's see. Who's it? Maybe it's not Japanese. I don't know. Wait, Shiro Masamune is a writer. It's based on the comic Ghost in the Shell. Um, let's see. I guess now we, now I gotta figure out. I I just wanna know. I just how you guys doing? You doing good? I just wanna know about the comic Ghost in the Shell. I think it is uh based on um. Jap- Japanese comic, I believe. Let's see. 2017 film based on what's it based on? <laughs> We're doing it. We're doing it big here. Screenplay based on Ghost in the Shell. There it is. Yes, it is Japanese. Yep, it's a Japanese column. Um, or not column, comic book. By Masamune Shiro. He's a... It's the fixed pen name. Oh, it's his pen name. Speaking of pen names... Who could I be? I could be Chris Penn. I could... I could my pen name could be Chris Penn. Wait, isn't that... I think that's Sean Penn's brother's name, actually. Pretty sure there's already an actor named... There's an actor named Chris Penn. Uh, I could be Chris... Chris Pohl. There you go. That's a good one. Chris Pohl. Chris Cloud. Ooh, Chris Cloud. I used to think St. Cloud was the coolest last name ever. Like, Remember that movie, Charlie St. Cloud? I used to wish my last name was St. Cloud for some reason. Or um, just anything like Saint sounded cool. Any um, two-word last name was cool to me. Like St. Clair, St. Cloud. I don't know why. Um... 
we'll have to discuss cool names. We'll do that in a future episode. Like, why are some names considered... Like, what's an example of a cool name? Like, a name I thought was cool? Um, I don't know. Like, I think, like, Justin. Justin's kind of a cool name. <laughs> if you're Justin out there listening, you're probably like... Every, I think most people think their name is not that cool. Is that, like, a thing? People don't like their own name? Or maybe some people do like their own name. I always just wish that I had a more unique name. Because Chris is, like, the most common name of all time. So, I was always wishing to be, like, I don't know, like, Nile. Niles. <laughs> Niles. Or, Niles or Miles. Either one. Or Giles. <laughs> Any of them. Um, let's see. Sing. The Sing Network is a video short from 2017. She plays Ash. Oh, Rough Night. I remember when this one came out. 2017, she plays Jess. Comedy crime thriller. 101 minutes, rated R. Things go terribly wrong for a group of girlfriends who hire a male stripper for a bachelorette party in Miami. Did not know that... So it's kind of like Magic Mike meets The Hangover. Hmm. Scarjo, Jillian Bell from uh, Workaholics, Zoe Kravitz, Elena Glazer from Broad City, one half of Broad City, Kate McKinnon from SNL, man, oh, Phil Dunphy's in it, Ty Burrell, Demi Moore, or is it Demi? Is it Demi Moore or Demi? Either way, Demi. Eric Andre is in it, oh my god. Eric Andre is so hilarious. His show is absolutely ridiculous, though. Like, he has, like, a... I don't know if it's a TV show or a web show, but he just, like, destroys his set, like, every episode. Just, <laughs> he's completely reckless, completely loose cannon. Um, here's a film. Speaking of Japan, this one's set in Japan. It's by my favorite director of all time, Wes Anderson. Isle of Dogs. Scarjo. Who's Scarjo playing this one? She plays the voice of Nutmeg. Um, Isle of Dogs. Isle of Dogs follows the boy's odyssey in search of his lost dog. Oh, I didn't know that that's what this was about. It's kind of sad. Um, it's like a. It's one of those weird cartoons. Kind of like um. Frosty a Snowman or. What is it? Those cartoons that the claymation is one of those ones. Uh, a short from 2018 called Pete Yorn, Scarlett Johansson, Bad Dreams. Uh, 2018 Avengers, Avengers Infinity War, Natasha Romanoff, a Black Widow. 2009 to 2018, Saturday Night Live plays Ivanka Trump, Lexi in the Porcelain Fountains segment. And that's three episodes. Uh, 2019, Captain Marvel. She plays Natasha Romanoff, uncredited. Hey, now we know what uncredited means. We don't have to get mad about that anymore since we looked it up. I used to get so frustrated about it. <laughs> Be like, why does it say uncredited but it's listed in her credits? But then I looked it up and we we all looked it up together. We all figured it out because her name was not listed in the beginning or end credits of the movie. 
on the screen, but it's still listed here in her IMDb page. So there you go. Uh, oh, there's a movie. She has a Black Widow movie coming out for her character. Let's see when this one comes out. Apparently, people don't like the new um, Captain Marvel movie that much. I don't know why. Haven't read any reviews on it. I think I actually think Bald Brian might be doing a Baldywood about it tomorrow on the uh, Corolla show because he said he's going to do a Baldywood. So I'm guessing he's going. He's he's a bit of a superhero comic book fan. I bet he's going to be doing Captain Marvel. That's my that's my prediction. My early prediction. Uh, let's see. She's an untitled Noah Baumbach project coming up in 2019. She plays Nicole. In 2019, something called Jojo Rabbit. She plays Rosie Betzler. Jojo Rabbit. A young boy hiding, or a young boy in Hitler's army finds out his mother is hiding a Jewish boy in their home. Oh, wow. That's like a Inglorious Bastards almost. It's like that one scene. Oh my gosh. That scene from Inglorious Bastards where they're hiding under the floorboards. I think it's in the beginning of the movie. It's so intense. And then Christoph Waltz comes in and they're just like all breathing heavily. They're trying to hold their breath under the uh, under the uh, floorboards. So intense. Um, Rebel Wilson's in this. Sam Rockwell's in it. Taika Watiti. Uh Taika Watiti from What We Do in the Shadows. From uh, New Zealand. I haven't seen What We Do in the Shadows or Hunt for the Wilder People. But I heard I've always heard so many good things about those two movies. Especially What We Do in the Shadows. It's um Jermaine Clement. It's like his They're the uh what's their what's that show? What's their show? <laughs> What's their show? Flight, Flight of the Concords. Yep, came up, came up with it. Team have to look it up. It was yeah, Flight of the Concords was like the famous. It was their famous show. But yes, Taika Waititi plays um, Adolf Hitler, in this. Um, let's see. Now I want to see what Flight of the Concords. I just want to see who was in that. If Taika Waititi was in it. Flight of the Concords. Was it? It was Jermaine Clement and Brett McKenzie. So I guess Taika Watiti was not a part of Flight of the Concords. But Jermaine Clement was. I definitely do remember watching these guys do like a hilarious music video. It's kind of like a New Zealand version of Lonely Island. Um, yeah, just Weird Al. A couple Weird Al's. Uh, there you go. Jo- so that's Jojo Rabbit. Let's see when that comes out. It sounds like it's going to be really good. Comes out. Oh, it just says 2019. Okay. And the director. Who's the director? Oh, Taika Waititi's directing it too. He's directing it and he, and he put himself in there as Hitler. Uh, Avenger. You think if he's directing it, he he played a different character. No, I guess he he's like, I'm going to be the star. I guess he just wanted to play the star. Throw himself in there. Title in the 
the main role, basically, in the spotlight. Um, here's her final movie. Holy Toledo. Holy cow. We made it. We did it, guys. Thanks for sticking with me this whole time. It's been a blast. Still absolutely beautiful out there in Pullman. It's 3.28 p.m. now. Gorgeous day outside. Oh, I'm, I'm going to have to go for a walk this afternoon. It's nice out there. And it's not even that cold. I think it's probably 40 degrees right now. But that's nice for... It's been freezing here, so... I like it. I like it. Uh, here we go. The last credit. Number 65 of 65 for Scar... Scar Joe. Scarlett Johansson. Avengers Endgame. Another Avengers movie. Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow. Yeah, this one's one's it coming out. Yeah, we talked about this one, uh, April twenty sixth, coming out next month. Very good. Let's uh let's do ScarJo's top three, bottom three, and get out of here. Call it a night. Call it a day. Um, so for top three, we'll go. Don, let's go Don John. Let's go her and Chef. Yeah, that's a good top three. Don John, her, and Chef. And then bottom three, let's go the let's go the island in good company and a love song for Bobby Long will be her bottom three. There we go. Oh my goodness. Can't believe we did it. I wanna take a celebratory bite of pizza right now. Before we end the episode there. Excuse me. That was just a celebrate there. Alright. Thank you so much. <laughs> I don't know why I had to take a bite. Couldn't wait just a couple more minutes. Um I'm still Chris Arneson. I'm still an author in Pullman. Still holding it down. Second floor. Coffee house apartments. Look at my window, beautiful blue sky, the icy blue Pullman sky, sitting across the street from Washington State University. Um, HQ, a star is born HQ, doing it big, I love it. Check out my books, Sponge Cake, a mostly made up story about a completely insane town and what's in the fridge on Amazon, Kindle, and Barnes and Noble. Check out my blog, thegoatone.blogspot.com. Our website, chrisleauthor.com. Thank you for following me on Twitter, chrisleauthor8, and Instagram, chrisarneson8. And thank you so much for share, share, sharing the podcast with a friend, family member, coworker, anyone and everyone. Um, thank you. Oh, yes. I forgot to mention. I decided to call y'all. So we said we might do um constellation or a galaxy of starfishes. Because um, y'all are listeners or starfishes. Um, but no, we're going to do something a little more fun. You shall be known as the Milky Way of starfishes. So from this moment on, in podcast history, on Pi Day, Pi Day 2019, March 14th, 2019, the uh, listeners, loyal fan club of A Star is Born podcast, are hereby known as the Milky Way of Starfishes. I feel like that was a momentous announcement right there. 
Um, awesome. So yeah, thank you so much for sharing it with people. Thanks for telling people about it, spreading the good word, uh, spreading the smiles, spreading the laughs, just being nice to people in general, rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes, um, all that good stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Here we go, baby. Closing time. Time for you to go home to the places where you belong. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. I know who I want to take me home. Take me home, home, home. Closing time. Time for you to go home to the places where you be, be, be Once again, thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Thank you for being yourself. Thank you for doing what you do, for doing you. Staying strong, um, smiling, being happy, spreading joy, being nice to people, um, all that good stuff. I hope you have a great day. I hope you have a great week, a great month, a great year. And um, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. I love you.